Visionaries Global Media, your number one source for podcasting entertainment. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good. What up, High Fiver? It's your boy, High Five Tom, and uh, you know how I like to roll this. I do a little preamble uh, before we get into the episode. Uh, this one, uh, this is episode 2.4, uh, doing a showcase of the great movie Die Hard uh, with my very good friend Graham of uh, the Good Cop, Bad Cop uh, Wrestling Podcast. Uh, Graham and I, you know, we met through uh, the Visionaries Global Media, and to be honest with you, Graham has been a very big inspiration, uh, motivator, and better friend. Um, Graham and I actually interact in the real life um, a lot. So, and just to have him on this was one of my favorite shows. Was a great time. Um, I mean, I know there's some debate whether or not this is a Christmas movie, and um, we settled that debate here. This is definitely a Christmas movie. Uh, but also, a lot of people on the outside look at this movie as an action movie. And then, as you can see, as Graham and I dug into this uh, for three plus hours, so I hope we strap in. Uh, but this, at the end of the story, at the end of the day, this movie is really. You know, another romance movie like Josh and I talked about previously with Carlito's Way. Um, yes, there's a lot of action, there's a lot of killing, a lot of explosions, uh, great special effects, but at the end of the day, uh, the essence of this story is just John McClane trying to, re, uh, to save his marriage. Um, and he just happens to have a bunch of uh, European terrorists that get in the way. So, uh, But yeah, I strap in. I hope everybody enjoys. Of course, I had to throw in a little uh, run DMC here in the preamble, but uh, Graham and I had a great time, and I can't thank him enough for doing this with me. And, um, you know, we could have, we should have really waited till Christmas to release this, but, you know, I really thought this was, uh, this is good enough. I wanted to release this now. You know, maybe we'll revisit it come uh, Christmas time. And but yeah, um, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys, because um, at the end of the day, you know, I did so. Uh, enjoy the uh, enjoy the showcase, high fivers. It's Christmas Eve in LA, California. Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? A New York cop, John McLean, has come to see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be taught a lesson in the real abuse of power. There is brilliant because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. But I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. Now, the last thing McLean wants... Think, damn it, think! ...is to be a hero. Where's Howie? Hey, Tucker! Where? But he doesn't have a choice. What does he think he's doing? John... They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. He's inside? Who is he? Who are you then? You have lost troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, wrong guess, huh? Would you like to go for double jeopardy? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... 
Well, what up, High Fivers? Uh, this is your boy, High Five Tom, and I've got a very, very, very special guest. Uh, my good friend, Graham, uh, a very big podcasting inspiration for myself and partner of crime and member also of the Visionaries Global Media. Um, co-host of one of my favorite podcasts for Sunday Night Walk Night, Good Cop, Bad Cop. Um, but Graham, uh, how you doing tonight, my friend? You can butter me up as much as you like. <laughs> I, I, I want to be, I got a question for you right now. Why the hell, this is, I don't know when this is coming out. We're in April right now. Why the hell are we reviewing a Christmas movie in April? We should be reviewing Hop right now. I'm sure you wouldn't be reviewing Independence Day on Memorial Day or Groundhog Day. <laughs> And Arbor Day or anything like that. Why the hell did you pick this time to review a Christmas movie? You know, it it just kind of happened that way, Graham. So I mean, and ironically enough, this movie actually came out in July. Uh, uh, well, summer blockbuster. Yeah. This, this uh, was weird for me actually because I actually watched this. Well, I watched it again in April, but now this is kind of like my uh, Christmas tradition. I've watched it the last three years in December, and it felt it actually kind of felt really weird watching it in the. Uh, uh, April. I didn't go and watch it at the cinema when it first came out, so I wouldn't. I have didn't either. But it was July. I knew it wasn't in the end of the year. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I would have loved to. Yeah, but I was ten, and my mom wouldn't let me go see a movie like this. <laughs> you know, um, what was the rating? That actually, I don't even know what the rating is for this. It's rated R. Yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, it's it's rated R. So, but I mean, but at, at the end of the day, Graham. I mean, obviously, to break down the fourth wall, we had talked about doing this movie. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. you said you were interested and our schedules kind of worked out, but at the end of the day, some Christmas movies just transcend season, you know, uh, this one holds up whenever. So when you mentioned this, I, I'm like, there's certain movies that I can watch at any time of the year. And, uh, regardless of, regardless of whether it's Christmas or not, yeah. um, this one, I was like, I can watch this at any time. If someone says, Hey, do you want to watch this? I'd be like, I'd be quite happy to, if I was around somebody's house and they would just happen to have it on and they were like, do you want to watch this? But like, absolutely. I can watch it. There, there's no limit to how many times I can watch this. Um, there's not many films I can do that with. Um, the other one that comes to my mind straight away, uh, Rocky four is one I can do that with as well. There's just something about certain films where it's like, I can just watch it over and over again. doesn't matter how many times. And this is one of them. Um, I had Die Hard in my top five films of all time. So once you said about this one, I was like, absolutely count me in. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say top 10 easily, but top five is definitely a definite possibility. But Rocky Four, huh? I know that's a bit of a weird one, but yeah, it's something that just resonated with me. I, I don't know particularly why. I don't know if it's just the music. Uh, I, I don't know. There's something about that one in particular that I can just keep it's watching a- over and over and over again. It's definitely a timeless story. I mean, I could watch any Rockies at any time. I mean, Rocky three is my personal favorite, but that's like more of a nostalgia thing. Um, but yeah, Hogan. Yeah. Well, that, that doesn't hurt either. So, 
Yeah, the Rocky Three, ironically enough, so was the first movie my parents let me come home from school by myself. I didn't have to go to the babysitter. So I came across some combos and some Orange Crush, and we had taped Rocky Three off TV the night before. And I sat there the first time my parents ever left me alone in the house was Rocky Three. So that's I remember my dad telling me very excitedly because we used to watch the A-Team. Yeah. And he, because he always comes up with Mr. T and you're like, well, that's obviously not his real name. And I remember him telling me one day really excitedly, he's like, I know what Mr. T's real name is. And I was like, oh yeah, what is it? And he was like, Clubber Lang. <laughs> at the time that didn't mean anything. But like, obviously once I'd watched the film, I was like, all right, you got, this t- <laughs> you got it totally wrong. But for a moment there, it was like, oh wow, we found out his real name. I was like, that's kind of That's priceless. Uh-huh. That, that's funny. That, that's good. Um, I, I forgot what I was going to ask you, Graham. Wow. We, um, oh, um, so speaking of nostalgia, when was the first time? So you've watched this movie several times like I have. Um, uh-huh. First time, like, what was your introduction to this movie? <sighs> that I don't, I do not remember. It would have been video uh, for yeah. sure. Um, I was 13 when it came out, so I definitely didn't see it at the cinema either. But uh, certainly at that age, it was a case where we didn't really have a block. We probably did have a blockbuster in England, but we didn't really go to that. Mm. We kind of went to like a small little store and you could pick them out. They weren't very expensive. You could pick them out for, I don't know, I want to say a pound or two pounds or kind of like a couple of dollars kind of thing. Um, And there was always deals like if you bought, if you'd rented five for a week, you got it for whatever it was like. And my mom was pretty good. Cool. She was like, yeah, go ahead. You tell me what you like, pick them out and then I'll get them for you. And she didn't really care what the ratings were uh, too much. I think if it would have been, I think if it would have been like all horror or all really dark stuff, then I think she might've been concerned, but I was mainly more interested in action. And I think she understood Kind of like I do with Mason. Like I'll let Mason watch R-rated films, but it depends what the R-rated what the R rating is for. Yeah. If it's got some swear words in it, then I'm okay with that. I, I'm not too bad with that. And same with I think it depends on the level of violence. Um, I think action films. I think I'm okay with that. And, and then that might just be because that's what I was allowed to watch at that age. So I don't see any difference why he wouldn't be um, allowed to do that. So yeah, it would have been video. Um, it wouldn't have been immediately because it wasn't like a top-notch store. So I'm going to guess my first time watching it was probably late 89, early 90. I'm going to guess something like that. Yeah. It might have been one where on the BBC, perhaps at Christmas, uh, when they get their blockbuster film, they always have like one marquee film that they used to watch because we don't have many channels in England at that time. It yeah. might have been on there as well. But yeah, I'm not sure. But I'm going to guess I was 14 or 15 when I first saw it. Yeah, kind of the same thing too. Listen, my parents were they were okay. My mom was strict in some ways, but not but like like for example for Die Hard, she said I could watch the whole movie except for the part with the boobs. When they're tearing, they're tearing <laughs> no, the calendar at the beginning, yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't watch that part, but I could watch everything else. The swearing, you know, the people getting their heads blown off. Um <laughs> And like the movie Lady Hawk, like I said, I could watch the whole movie. Have you ever seen Lady Hawk with Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer? I haven't. That doesn't sound familiar. Um, it's an old fantasy. It's like 83. But there's a scene in the beginning where they're hanging a bunch of people. I couldn't watch that. Oh, gosh. Like Stand By Me, I couldn't watch the part with a dead body, but I could watch the rest of the movie. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I watched this with my mom. We had rented it. And I, I had heard about it. So there was some buzz. I and mean, that was probably, yeah, because this came out July 88. And videos back then were probably popping relatively, uh, so it's probably spring of 89. 
you know, by a time. About right. it, um, yeah. Cause we yeah. rented it. And Mrs. Meyer, she had to watch it first and then we, we watched it together. But then I told my mom that I was going to take it back, but I never did. And then like three weeks later, I had to bike to the, um, to the video store, which is like a six mile bike ride, you know, uphill both ways, which, <laughs> you know, where I lived, it was very hilly. So it was uphill, but I got there and the video store had closed. Like it shut down. Oh, wow. So the video cape I still have in my Pabst Blue Ribbon hard box is still the video from select video from Hartford, Wisconsin that shut down in the three weeks we didn't return the video. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. So it's, it's definitely, that was always kind of a nostalgia part too. Cause I always told my mom, Oh yeah, I took it back. Oh yeah. I took it back. And I hadn't. So. <laughs> that would, that could have been a lot of money in those days as well. Those return fees were ridiculous. They used yeah. to try and nail you for everything. Like, like today's generation's got no idea of like, did you rewind a video after you watched it? Like that, that was a huge thing. Like, oh, it'll wear oh. down the video and it'll yeah. shorten the life. You got to rewind. Like that just sounds ridiculous now. Yeah. Be kind, rewind. So, <laughs> yeah. I remember because yeah, we got a VCR. I was like seven or eight. And the first video we ever rented was Empire Strikes Back. And I didn't, and I'm seven, eight years old in my defense, but I didn't realize you had to turn it off. And then hit rewind. So I'm sitting there with the remote with the rewind button. <laughs> <laughs> out, so. Oh my gosh. I had technology issues even back when I was seven. So, um, but yeah, high fivers. If you haven't guessed by now, uh, Graham and I are going to review probably top five greatest Christmas movies of all time uh, the 1988 seminal classic, Die Hard, um, starring Bruce Willis. Um, yeah. And just a little background. So I did, you know, and this is really the first time I watched it with like a more, I want to say educated eye. Um, but I always heard it was from a book. So it was from two books or there was two books. One was called the detective. Um, and that actually got made into a movie by Roderick Thorpe. Um, was the author starring Frank Sinatra. Mm, yeah. And then the author, um, got inspired to write this book after he saw one of my personal Paul Newman favorites, Towering Inferno. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that movie? I have, but it's a long time ago. You should definitely. I've only seen it once. I know that for sure. Yeah, the, the effects don't hold up, but I'm a Paul Newman guy. I mean, I lo- I could watch Paul Newman movies all day. Um, Actually, as I'm saying that, was I, I'm wondering, there's a remake, right? I'd probably just watch the remake. I don't think so. I mean, there might be kind of, I mean, Die Hard is technically kind of a remake. Well, Tower, Towering Inferno wasn't terrorists. It was just like they built, um, Paul Newman was the engineer that built the tallest building in the world. Mm-hmm. But the fire system wasn't correct. And of course, the fire starts and there's a, there's a, you know, fire starts in the 70th floor and they're on like the 120th floor and he's got to get everybody out. But it was, um, it was Paul Newman and, uh, oh my gosh, the famous actor, Steve McQueen. Uh huh. I'm trying to look on IMDb right now to see if that there was a. Yeah, I don't see. Actually, ridiculously, I typed in Towering Inferno. Unless I spelt it wrong, the only things that are coming up are TV episodes. The film isn't even coming up. That's ridiculous. Weird. Huh. I must be spelling Inferno wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I actually, I can't. No, there's a, otherwise, those other names wouldn't come up. Um, is that weird? Why that's not coming up on them? Oh, 1974. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, so in, uh, in the book, um, Bruce Willis's character is actually substantially older, 
And the reason was for that was they wanted Frank Sinatra to play said person, but um, but the screenplay actually didn't get picked up for a while thereafter. So, um, yeah, but this movie starring Bruce Willis, uh, one of my favorite actors. And at this time, he had only done two two movies, um, neither of which were very good, Sunset, and I don't even remember the other one, but he was a comedy actor for The Honeymooners. And um, do you by any chance have any idea who's the first person? Uh, Bruce Willis was not the first, nor really the 10th person they wanted to do this movie. Um, now, I did tell you, I watched this, uh, I watched this on Amazon, uh-huh. and um, they have something called X-Ray where they kind of give you the little facts on the yeah. side. I do remember, I do remember seeing some of the names that come up. I'm, I'm struggling on one of the persons. I'm sure one of them, Sam, somebody, and I can't remember. I seem to remember. Well, didn't they offer it to Robert De Niro as well? No, it was uh, the first person they had to contract contractually obligated because it was a sequel to the Detective was actually Frank Sinatra. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm totally missed that. Oh so, yeah. Um. So obviously everyone was very happy because Frank Sinatra in this movie at seventy some odd years old. <laughs> I was gonna. How? Yeah, that wouldn't have worked at all. That would have been he a totally different. Jealous, film. Yeah, because he was congr- with him. It was being the sequel. He was congratulately optal. Um, congrat. Uh, contractually obligated. But yeah, it was offered to St- Stallone, uh, Schwarzenegger. Uh, Schwarzenegger actually said no because he could do twins because he's trying to get away from. Um, Action. Action movies. Um, but let's see here. I had a whole list. But yeah, I mean, it was um, Nick Nolte, Burt Reynolds, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, uh, Clint Eastwood. And uh, the one that really kind of made me chuckle was Richard Dean Anderson of MacGyver fan. Oh. Mm. So it'd be fun to okay. fan- it'd be funny to fancy book Richard Dean Anderson in that because I could possibly see him pulling it off. You know, because I mean, Willis wasn't an action star at the time. Now, are they picking that? Are they picking that just because of like MacGyver? Is that what they're thinking? Maybe, yeah. So, like, uh, he's in a building. He's got it's uh, being constructed. There's supply cables. So that, that just seems a little typecast as a like. I love, I, like I love him as an actor. I, I like uh, I like yeah. Stargate as well. But um, I'm, it just seems from that time frame that it seems like a MacGyver type thing. That's how I'm. Seen it. And see, that goes against all the other names that you mentioned. All the other names, uh, big Hollywood stars, you think of them as strong characters, and you know they're going to basically yeah. punch everybody down. But when I think of Richard Dean Anderson, I'm thinking of totally the opposite. I'm thinking of somebody who's going to use his mind rather than his uh, his strength. So it, that that does seem a very interesting pick why they would go with that. But it yeah. sounds like there might have been some major rewrites on this then as well. Because the whole point of John McClane is he's a flawed character. He's not your superhero. I know that that was one of the things they did discuss originally. Originally, it was going to be your superhero who doesn't do anything wrong. And I think that's the beauty of Die Hard. The fact that John McClane is flawed. He isn't perfect. You can see that he makes mistakes. And um, I think that makes him far more appealing as a hero than your traditional hero. And something that always resonated with me is my sister always said she liked Die Hard because Bruce Willis bleeds. And I never really understood like what she meant by that until I grew uh-huh. up. Like you said, he's flawed. Yeah. Like uh-huh. all the Schwartz and don't get me wrong. I love, you know, predator. I mean, commando. Great. I know it's a yeah. great action movie. Um, Rambo actually did have a little bit of heart, but obviously Stallone, but I mean, they didn't really bleed. I mean, Rambo was pretty flawed, but a Schwarzenegger, he's not bleeding, mm-hmm. you know, and Bruce Willis. Terminator. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. get, get his ass kicked in this movie. 
Uh, I'm sure, I know we're going to go through the film in order, but since you just talked about the bleeding thing and it kind of comes up very early in the film anyway, the fact that he's not wearing shoes or socks for this whole film is just so bizarre. Like I, I was taking paying far more attention to details this time, so obviously that's the thing where he's got his he's got his, his feet are all bleeding and everything. But to get to that scene, you've got to make sure that he doesn't have any shoes on, so yeah. he's got to take his shoes off. And that gets to that very first scene film where he's on the airplane. He's like, "Yeah, you got to make knuckles with your toes, fists <laughs> with your toes." So fists um, with your toes. It, 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 it was such a strange piece of writing that they had to, they were sort of like all right so we've got this scene but we've got to kind of make him bleed and yeah. he can't make escape very easily it's like all right how can we get that to to me that just that was probably one of the the scenes that i picked apart more than anything one of the storylines that was just like that's really strange that how they put that in and it's funny because that was in the book um the whole rolex thing was in the book oh okay the shoot the glass thing you know where obviously they're talking about walking um, the fire hose jumping thing was in the book. It was a whole, I mean, oh. a lot of that stuff was, um, but the big difference was like you said, yeah, was because the character was a six year old and he was actually going to, um, pick up his daughter who was working for an oil company in LA when the German terrorists show up oh. and in the book, they're actually terrorists. Uh, but the thing McTiernan wanted to do is he didn't want to make them terrorists because he wanted to entertain people. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit. So he actually yeah. gave gave them. I mean, robbers seems a lot more palatable than mm-hmm. making a political statement at the time. Correct. And yep. um, he just wanted them to have you know some life, and that also <laughs> was not your typical bad guys mm-hmm. in, in action movies. So yeah, I was pretty fa- fascinated by that. So um, and then the st- so obviously you know I mean books they get they had a screenwriter. So the screenwriter's name was Jeb Stewart. Um, and you know, like Hollywood does, he's down on his luck. La, da, da, he's writing the screenplay. And I guess him and his wife had a humongous argument and he goes out and he's going to like, I don't know if he's going to a bar or pick up cigarettes or something, but he almost gets into an accident and almost dies. Mm. And then he had an epiphany. He's like, well, what if I died and I didn't get to say sorry to my wife? Hence, well, Hollywood. Oh. And basically the crux of this whole movie is obviously he's fighting terrorists, but he's fighting to get back so he can apologize to his wife for being an asshole. Mm-hmm. You don't get that movie. Well, you didn't back then. You do now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it listen, yeah, people, I mean, obviously it's a Christmas movie, but people call us, you know, an action movie, but it's so much more um, than it's, I mean, there's, I mean, especially at this time, I mean, cause we're about the same age. I mean, you remember movies before this didn't really have depth like this and this, this yeah. movie really changed the game. Yeah. You know. And realizing the the balance of power in that relationship as well, where with, I would say we still probably come from that era where we have those traditional male female roles, mm-hmm. and the fact that the she had a more powerful job than what he had at that time, and that was something that was difficult for males and male egos to sometimes take at that time. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, listen, after this, I mean, you get people like Keanu Reeves, Will Smith, you know, smaller um, actors, you know, so. And obviously, yeah. Will Smith is timely as we're recording this. So I don't know if that's going to resonate to people two years <laughs> from now. But um, yeah, so I mean, that's really kind of the introduction. Um, you know, we could go into the, you know, all the music and everything and how this was shot. But I mean, we'll go through that. I mean, if we do that, we'll be here for like 10 hours. Or so, um, but I, I, one thing I do want to say is I was so impressed in like in watching it, like 
watching like the commentary and stuff like that. I mean, all the, I mean, they picked apart the whole Ode to Joy and it's played in different parts throughout the movie and the music and the cool thing, obviously you've got the actors, they've got Alan Rickman, you know, Bruce Willis and everything, but the building and the music were also characters in this movie, which was awesome. So, which also trans, you know, as it transcends, you know, it's not your typical blow them up. And I, and that was something that was, that was done on purpose. Um, yeah. So we'll go into the cast real quick. Uh, obviously this movie starring Bruce Willis, like we talked about before, uh, his first action movie. Um, but the only reason he was able to take this movie is because his co-star civil shepherd, a and got pregnant. So they were shutting the show down. Um, but at, mm-hmm. at the beginning, he actually had to do both, uh, both jobs. So he'd have to do moonlighting at night. And then this during, and he did all of his own, I shouldn't say all of his own stunts, but 90% of his own stunts were, he did by himself. Now that was one thing when we say we're paying attention to detail and I'm listening, I'm looking at those little notes on the side. And one of them said, it's like, it's very obvious here that Bruce Willis is using a stunt double. And I never really paid that much attention. And I guess you don't, when you're engrossed in a film and you're watching it, when it just cuts through quickly, it's, and it's like, oh, it's you assume if they got the same clothes, the same height, they got the same hairstyle, and that you're like, oh, it's the same person. And then, of course, once I saw that and I was looking, I was like, oh, yeah, it's clearly not the same person. So, a lot of those fight scenes, um, they mentioned you could see that it wasn't him. Like when he's falling down steps and stuff, that's obviously, obviously, you're not want your star actor falling right. down steps and possibly breaking a leg or something yeah. and not being able to do the rest of the film. But yeah. Um, yeah. Like, um, let's say when he jumped off the building, he did that himself. Uh, huh? Yeah, there's a couple other ones. He didn't fall down the elevator shaft. We'll get to that, though, because that's a kind of funny story about that one. So, um, But he got $5 million bucks for this. Oof, that's yeah. a pretty tidy sum in 1988. Yeah, especially for a 10th choice actor. Yeah, Oof. for, your, for your, your third movie, and the other two weren't very good. So, um, yeah, definitely set the bar. But it was also stars uh, Bonnie Bedelia. Uh, which oh, I, I should, I'm horrible. She had been Grammy nominated. So she played a female NASCAR driver in a previous movie. Um, and okay. she did a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I guess Bruce Willis, um, picked her. Um, and then we've got Al Powell as Reginald Val Johnson, which was, uh, the father on family matters known for Urkel. I you know, so. Do you remember that show? Never seen that show. Side that oh, so I that might have been a thing from the states. Um, I think it was. Okay, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Like, there's a lot of those that you and you kind of don't even realize that when when I say when you just live in one country, like you tend to get used to your things and you don't always realize it. it's not until you move to a second country that you suddenly realize a lot of the things that you take for granted. Um, and not the same. Now, I actually did have a lot of exposure to American stuff before I moved. Um, like, I was a big fan in college of Seinfeld. Nobody else had any yeah. interest in Seinfeld at all. But you, it's, I think it's grown over time that people have come to appreciate it more. Um, but in England, it was shown on the... It wasn't the major channel, and it was shown at ridiculous times. It used to be shown at, like, 1.35 a.m., and then the following week, it would be on a different day, and it would be on, like, at 12.30 and they would constantly bounce it around the schedules, but it was always like after midnight. So something, obviously, Seinfeld now, if you ask people like rank your top comedies, Seinfeld's normally up there. It's normally like one of the top ones. But even something as big as that never really resonated in England at all. Friends certainly did. There are some that are huge successes. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if it's what the mainstream appeal is necessarily. Um, but for me, Seinfeld is far better than what Friends is. I like Friends, don't get me wrong. I think it's a perfectly okay show, but... 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we're friends in real life. You think I'm like, you're not actually from here originally. So, um, but I don't know if Urkel, because Urkel was pretty pop culture wise. So I don't know if the character Urkel would have made it over there or not. But so the kid with the um, I don't think so. I, that, yeah, there's kind of a lot of those that like just, just don't like I know the names, but like I don't know anything. Like I have no context to them at all. And I'm trying to think. It took me the longest time. I think this is only about two years ago that I watched my first episode of. Um, I'm, I can't even remember the name, but this is how embarrassing it is. I was about to say Everybody Loves Lucy, but I know that's not what it is. I can't Everybody even think loves of the Raymond. Name Sorry, Everybody Loves Raymond. No, it's Lucy, oh. but I can't. I can't think what the show's called. Oh, I love. Uh, it's not I love. It's I love Lucy. I love Lucy. Thank you. It was close. I was getting, I knew it was Everybody yeah. Loves Raymond. I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't that. But yeah, I'd never seen an episode of I Love Lucy. Like that's considered like kind of one of the classics here. Or well, Gilligan's Island. I've never seen an episode of Gilligan's Island. I think I've seen like 10 minutes of a Gilligan's Island. Like you asked me to name a character on that. I have no idea at all. Like there's just, that was one of the things I quickly found when I moved across here. Cause I actually like trivia and I was, um, who wants to be a millionaire was kind of big just as I was starting to yeah. move across. And um, the hundred dollar questions, Mm-mm, couldn't answer them. That was my worst question because it's things that everybody knows if you lived in America. I remember the first question I ever saw on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And it was, what's the biggest signature on the Declaration of Independence? Or if, or it was something like that. Or it was something about if what person would they ask you, if they wanted your autograph, what name would they say? Like, is it Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, um, I don't know, Benjamin Franklin or George yeah. Washington? And I had absolutely no idea on that question. Now, after I'd lived in the States for three or four years, I was like, that's a super easy question. But yeah, all those things on uh, popular culture, uh, sports, that uh, sports, not so bad because I used to watch a lot of American sports, but TV in particular and uh, little things like that were always very difficult. Well, yeah, it's funny you say that, too, because, yeah, because obviously this debuted July of 88 in the States, uh, but Mm -hmm. it didn't get overseas until eight months later. Uh Uh-huh. So... So yeah, I was probably right then. It probably could have been 1990 then before I got to see it. I didn't even think about it. That's a big gap for, I know it wasn't originally planned, expected to be like a big, big film. Yeah. Um, but I know it was the uh, it was the biggest box office in 1988 in America. Yeah. So I'm wondering why, as soon as that happened, you would have thought they'd been like, hey, quick, we need to get this out everywhere. While there's a buzz going on, we need to get this distributed to... Yeah, to yeah. England, to Germany, to France, to like everybody as quick as we can. That's some really surprising that took so long. Like now, from the day that comes out, everything's out on DVD or instant watch within like a, a few months now. Eight months sounds a ridiculous length of time to wait. Yeah. Were they waiting for the Christmas release? Was that the deal? <laughs> Maybe. I know it's not quite eight, it's six months, but. Um, but in listen, and I don't know if it was, I mean, because the, the bad guys are European, but you don't really identify them as European. I don't know, you know. Smarter people than us make these decisions, Graham. So who knows? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess I guess this movie it only cost twenty eight million dollars to make. It was nineteen eighty eight, so it's probably closer to like seventy eighty million now. But with all the well, a lot of the effects. I mean, they didn't. I mean, they didn't have technology. We'll get into that in the movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of those effects were like real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The explosions. The helicopters like, were yeah, really they did flying. real explosions outside the building and inside the building. I was like, yeah. oh my god. That's crazy. Um, I would still let you see that building too. So obviously, it's a real building. Yeah, um, it's the fact of the Fox Tower, uh-huh. and it's funny because it's built at forty stories, but it's actually only thirty-five. So uh-huh. if, in the whole movie, you never see anything referencing a floor higher than thirty-five. And I look yeah, too. That sounds about right. Because I'm a dork. 
you know, so they say the yeah. roof, but um, yeah, like the fire alarm, even they're showing the fire alarms going off, it doesn't say thirty, you know, so um, huh. yeah. But I want to uh, throw one fact in then that I saw about the building that came up right at the end because I didn't know it was the Fox building until right at the end, at the end of the film. Now I'm not sure when the um, captions that were made that went with this film, and it could be fairly, it could have been a long time ago, so this might not still be true. But it said that because of uh, tourism, people like want to go and get their picture with the building. Yeah. You're not allowed to get your picture in front of that building, it said. That might be pretty hard to enforce, I would have thought, for starters. But I guess you can't go right up onto the steps. But that sounds like a really strange rule to enforce. Like, from a film that's nearly... We've come up to the 35th anniversary next year, and you're not allowed to get your picture taken in front of that building? It's like, wow. That's stupid. I know. I saw that, too. And that's just... Yeah, that's just dumb. Whereas when I arrived in DC, um, one of the shows that I was a big fan of in England before I moved to the States was The X-Files. And every time that they kind of cut inside, they always show you the FBI building, which is in DC. And when I went to DC and it was the actual building, I was like, yes, I I was so excited by that because I didn't know if it was a real one. I had no idea at all. But that one, I know I got a picture outside of. Yeah, I, I love stuff like that. So I'm just kind of checking out movie seats. And um, ironically enough, I just had a very good conversation with my friend Jimmy, uh, who runs the Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team, but that's not our store itself. But uh, it's kind of a, a bunch of guys on Facebook that go around and take pictures of, like movies and famous grave sites and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it can be a very fascinating listening for all high fivers out there. Um, but yeah, original Bill Johnson, but he was on Family Matters, but I guess he was on a couple other cop shows. So he had a long career, but I guess he got kind of typecast, but um, <laughs> he was awesome. I mean, he a perfect yeah. fit. Um, yeah, because yeah, I guess, um, yeah, Robert Duvall was kind of bandied around for his part, but I think, don't take this the wrong way if Reginald Ville Johnson is, but I mean, Robert Duvall is more of a strong character. Um, mm-hmm. You couldn't really see him being a weak person who would never draw his gun and eating Twinkies. Yeah. Um, so... But uh, and then standing the um, the bar was set very hard for bad guys with Hans Gruber, uh, played by the very famous now unfortunately departed Alan Rickman, and this was his first movie ever. Yeah, um, pretty awesome. I think he kind of nailed it. Kind of knocked it out of the park. So, um, yeah. What was his background? Did he have like, um, like, is he a classically trained actor? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So he's a Shakespearean actor and they saw him in some play. Um, my, I'm glad my wife's not here because she's not going to yell at me for not knowing it. Um, because she loves her Shakespeare, but yeah, they saw him some and they took a flyer on him and yeah, obviously it worked out. Dude killed it. I mean, rewatching this, it was just like, he was so good. Yeah. Just so good. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Carl, his henchman, was played by um, Andrew Gagorian or something like that, who unfortunately has also passed away. But he is a defected Russian ballet dancer. No way. Wow. Yeah. Um, if you had given me multiple choice and that would have been one of the options, that would yeah. that one would have been gone straight away. Wow. Yeah. So, like, I mean, like the fight scene he has with Bruce Willis, you can totally tell him. Mean, you can see with the footwork and everything, so... Um, and his English was great. Yeah, I guess he defected here in like 79. I mean, I guess he was a pretty famous ballet dancer too. Like he was, he wasn't just some guy that was working off Broadway. So, I mean, I guess, but, yeah. um, and I guess he was in a couple other movies too. So, um, and then we've got Dwayne T. Robinson, the jerk face police commissioner. Um, <laughs> now, I don't know if this movie came to England, but are you aware of the Breakfast Club? 
I am, and I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> I get into big trouble with my wife. All the kind of classic American films that um, she kind of grew up with, and it's like, I hate them. I don't, I, they just don't <laughs> resonate with me. I think you had to be in American high school to appreciate them. Yeah. And I wasn't. And I know another friend said like uh, 16 Candles as well. And I was like, no, didn't like that. I'm trying to think uh, uh, Fast Time at Ridgemont Highs, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't like any one of those films. I would be shocked if any one of those films had a high on a rating of IMDb from me of uh, three or above. And they just did not do anything for me at all. So, yes, familiar with it. Can't remember anything about it. I might not have even made it to the end. Uh, yeah, so he we was, just talked about with the uh, wrestling things. If I'm impatient, I don't like it. I'm stopping. <laughs> like, I don't care if it's a classic or not. If I'm not enjoying it, I don't see the point in watching it. Just well, to say, I, mean, why, I watched why? the classic all the way to the end and I hated it. Like, I know if I'm going to enjoy it or not. Yeah, the, I mean, the Breakfast Club was your, your typical 80s suburban um, love teen story. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was he was the principal that was the foil to Judd Nelson's character. So he was the, mm-hmm. and he's, he's pretty famous for it. And then um, I can't believe I forgot to write down his name, but the, um, the reporter Thornburg, Richard Thornburg was played mm-hmm. by Richard Atherton. Um, also the asshole in Ghostbusters. Ah, agree packing Ghostbusters. So very well casted. Like every single person we just mentioned um, was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't imagine this movie without them, you know. Mm-hmm. And just real quick, um, so Ellis, the the Ellis, what Who's was he? Holly's? Uh, oh no, he's the assistant. Wrong. Yeah, I think it well, was I mean, the, Holly's show, uh, the he's, assistant. He, yeah, he's the jerk face cokehead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but ironically enough, so he's played by Hart Bruckner, but I guess his dad was in the original The Detective. Oh, okay. Yeah, I found that out. So, um, yeah. So, uh, after all that, um, Graham, we should probably start with the movie. I want to say one thing. I was just quickly scrolling through my notes um, when you mentioned Alice, um, because there was something that I didn't actually realize as I was going through that. I'd always assumed from all the years I'd watched it that that was his first name. That was his last name. It was was Harry Ellis, it says. Oh, that's right. It was. And I didn't think, and, and unless they said Harry at any other point, but I think everybody always referred to him as Alice. And in my head, I'd always assumed that Alice was a first name, but it was actually his last name. Like people say McLean all the time, and, but you obviously realize McLean is a last name. But with it just being Alice in a business situation, I assumed it was always his first name, but it was actually Harry. Oh, huh. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because McLean listened in that one scene over the radio. He's like, Alice, Alice, Alice. So, yeah. Interesting. So the reason I noticed it was it came up on the notes and it mentioned Harry. And I was like, Harry? I was like, who the hell's Harry? And then I looked on the thing, I was like, oh, Harry Ellis. I was like, oh, that's him. I was like, okay. Yeah. But yeah, that was something I hadn't picked up on before. Huh. And there was a couple things actually this time I had watched. Um, I did pay like I hadn't picked up on before, but we'll get into that as we go. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but at the beginning, we uh we see an airplane landing, and we uh our first shot of John McClane is him holding onto an armrest like he's about to rip that thing off of the, the chair. Um, so right off the bat, like we had talked earlier, um, he's not your macho hero, he's scared shitless of this plane. You know, yeah. and that really just sets the tone. Um, meets your classic 80s businessman, you know, it's like, oh, I've been flying for nine years, la, 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 la. But this is uh, obviously very pivotal to the movie. 
um, because he says the key to air travel is when you get home is you take off your shoes and you make fits <laughs> with your toes in the rug, um, mm-hmm. which will obviously play very large into the movie. Um, yeah, and then they're getting off, and then uh, McLean's getting his bag, and then you know he's like, he sees again, he's like, "Oh, I'm a cop, and then for nine years, la da da da." He's carrying a bear, a bear for his kids. Which, ironically enough, uh, the first movie I reviewed, Hunt for Red October, which also directed by John McTiernan, also had a teddy bear. Hmm. So, now, um, one thing I did pick up on this one as well, because I was listening, to, I was right, look, trying to make a few little notes as we're going along as well. Um, he mentioned the fact he's like, trust me, I've been doing this for 11 years. Yeah. So that will, so I work backwards to see, because often when you have actors in films, particularly those films that you talked about earlier, those 80s films that have teenagers in, you've normally got actors who are <laughs> late 20s, 30s, right. playing those roles. So I was kind of curious, because I was working back, all right, so 11 years before that. So that meant he became a cop at age 22. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of plausible, actually. I went with Bruce Willis as a real age. And then oh, really? Took off 11. I was like, that actually seems kind of plausible, which in films is really unusual because they normally will scale people down. Whatever yeah. the actor's age is, they're playing a role that's much, much younger than that. So I like that right at the start that that was actually plausible. So he was 33 in this movie, huh? Bruce Willis? Yep. Wow. Yep. Huh. And that means he actually became a cop the year I was born. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like we talked about before, just, I mean, showing Willis as flawed, um, you know, definitely different from the early eighties, you know, the, the Rambos and the Cobras and the Terminators and Predator. Um, I do enjoy those movies. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. Um, yeah, you don't see, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger being scared the first time you ever meet him. So, um, and then we get, we, uh, switch over, we get our first glance at the Nakatomi office. And Nakatomi is like a clan in Japan. And I want to do more research on it, but I forgot. Um, yeah, I never, I didn't even give it a thought. Yeah. Um, but it's really cool. So I guess the office is actually inspired by a Frank Lloyd Wright painting. So Falling Water. So that was like a whole big thing to show that the Japanese were ripping off the Americans because, um, said you not living in the States time, obviously we're only 30 some odd, you know, 40 years removed from world war two. There was still a big, I mean, it was the whole thing. I mean, as, as Takagi talks about later, it was Japan was taking over the United States. Yeah. You know, um, and they're just, I guess they used that to show, um, you know, they're, what's the word I'm looking for? Absorbing American culture, a lot of da da. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then we see how our first introduction to Bonnie Bedelia, and um, no offense to Bonnie Bedelia, but she was also differently cast because usually in these movies it's the the bubbly young, you know, blonde girl that is the is the you know, but no, she's a I mean very professional, strong woman. Um, yeah. And actually, while I'm thinking about it, Graham, how did you view her? I mean, because some people say like I don't know, I thought she was a strong character, uh, but everyone I, I thought so. She had to she had to cope with uh, bringing up two kids by herself as well. She had to move all the way across country. She yeah. had to work for a company that she didn't necessarily. It was like a big step up for her when she joined that company, and she'd risen through the ranks of that company. Um, and she had to deal with people like Ellis as well there. So uh, no, I, I thought she was a strong character. I, I don't, yeah. Some people just kind of. I'm not going to get into it, but I, I thought so also. I mean, it wasn't your norm. But yeah, she was a strong. I mean, very intelligent. Um, and else, else she did, you know, keeping it together, knowing that her husband's being, you know, but she never gives up that it's her husband. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, she's still working and, uh, Harry Ellis, 
He's definitely trying to get his floor down with her. Um, and then she calls home real quick to see if John's called. And then uh, she just tells Paulina to make up the spare bedroom mm-hmm. just in case. Yeah. Um, so we get there, definitely get the first inkling of, you know, hopefully there's some makeup here. So, and she, Paulina said that she already had. Now, this was the part that I thought was a little strange, though. This, this is the one that, if you're starting to pick holes in the story a little bit, like from, it didn't really make sense that they hadn't kind of formalized this ahead of time. He's flying like all the way over from New York to the West Coast, and they haven't even decided if they're going to hang out together over Christmas. Like, why is he hang, Why is he going over there? Then is he really just going for the party? And then he's going to go and hang with his cop friends who he's talked about, who's retired out there. Like, that just seems so implausible. It seems like if, if you're flying over there, you're going to meet up with the, you want to see the kids. And the only way you're going to do that is if you're staying at that house. It, that part of it didn't really make any sense to me. I, I find that very hard to believe in 1988, ahead of when, when there's no cell phones or anything, particularly. Yep. You've got the in-car phone, because we saw that on the... Um, we saw the chauffeur and he was having all that. He mentioned the phone and all that stuff. They have that. But in general, you'd want to you'd want to formalize those plans like several weeks in advance, you would think. Um, like, so it, yeah, that part didn't piece, it didn't work for me at all. Like it was like, oh, do you want to come over for Christmas? Do you want to see the kids? Okay, I'll do that. I'll buy a ticket. But yeah, it just sounded like he bought a ticket on a whim. He hadn't really told her what was gonna happen. And that part was a little messy for me. Yeah, well, and she didn't even know at this time if he even made the plane yet. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I just took it as he's just being macho and just like, you know, he's acting like he doesn't want to stay there. He's going to go stay with his friend in Pomona or Ramona or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, but, I, well, I can, so, so is that really what he's saying the deal is? He's flying over to the West Coast to go and see his buddy. Like, I don't think that's it at all. Yeah. I just, I mean, I think he's too macho to, to admit that he misses his wife, so. I think he is, but I'm sure at that time he's, he wants to see his kids, though. I don't think there's any doubt that he loves his yeah. kids. And for that reason, that even if he's not getting on with Holly and they're trying to, whether they're trying to get back together or not trying to get back together, he would be in that spare room and he would see his kids on Christmas Day. Yeah. And it sounds like they didn't even plan for that at all. And is this, I don't remember, is this, is this, this is Christmas Eve that this is going yeah. on, right? So, um, so is he really going to not have a room organized on Christmas Eve? And then on, he's not going to see the kids Christmas morning? Like, that, that makes it even worse. He's too macho for that kind of stuff, Graham. He doesn't need no room, so. I don't know. What kind of yeah. party corporation has this big Christmas party on Christmas Eve, too? I know it's part of the story. <laughs> a little late. Uh, it's like, really? You know, they shouldn't be home with their family, but, you know. It is what it is. Sometimes you have to, like with wrestling, you have to uh, suspend your or suspend your disbelief. So, um, but then we see yeah. John going through the baggage claim, and still to this day, it's. I mean, you remember this? I mean, when did people? When did smoking get banned in um, in England? <laughs> um, oh, oh, smoking in England um, in the pubs. Um, it was after I'd left. So, but it was, it was back in place when, um, me and my wife had moved back to England. So it was between 2000 and, uh, 2006. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it lights up a cigarette. It's, it's still weird to see people, you know, smoking in public. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, especially in an airport. Uh-huh. Um, I, just now, to- I know this is the, um, I know this is the second film, but I think it's even stranger when you see, you've got the, uh, the woman with a taser in her hand luggage. 
Yeah. She takes another plane. Yep. <laughs> She's zapping Thornburg with it. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, can you imagine? This is 1990. Like, you can't even you can't even have a belt on, or sometimes you gotta take your shoes off when you go through, but she could have a taser in her bag. It's like, oh my gosh, it's uh yeah, oh, you definitely notice how times have changed when you watch the, some of these films. The good old days. So yeah. Um yeah, but this is where we get to meet Argyle, our limo driver. Um, played by Deverell White, who did some other stuff. Um, but he's like, oh yeah, he's like, I'm not really sure what to do. He's like, you know, a lot of, uh, this is my first time driving a limo. He's like, that's okay. It's my first ride and first time riding one. So, um, once again, Sean McLean, you know, he's not Mr. Fancy Pants. Um, and he sits in front, which is something I also actually like to do. Um, like if I get an Uber or a taxi or whatever, I always like sitting in front. I have a feeling it's probably from this movie like hmm. subliminally. So I just like, I don't like being chauffeured around, um, especially in foreign countries. I mean, I like sitting in the front um, that way I can kind of chat up and learn more, you know? So a um, little side story on my note, but yeah, I'm, I'm a front sitter. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. And then uh, yeah, Argyle is chatting them up like crazy. Uh, we definitely get a sense here that John's got some marital problems. You know, that was always pretty funny. Um, and Argyle definitely calls us bullshit. What he says, like, he's like, oh, I, um, I just can't go pack. I got a six-month backlog of bad guys I'm trying to put in jail. He's like, no, you thought you was going to make it out here and crawl, crawl, um, come crawling back to daddy or something like that. So um, yeah. good stuff. Um, Argyle obviously plays a very instrumental part in the movie. Um, and this is the part where the greatest Christmas song of all time plays. <laughs> What am I? Yep. I, you know, and if you don't think it's got Christmas and Hollis, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I don't actually have that on my Christmas playlist. I, I made a note of it as it was going through, and I was like, I do not have that on my Christmas playlist. So um, I got to, I got to add that. Um, I did like when he was describing the car to him as well. He's like, yeah, this car's got everything uh, <laughs> CD, CB, yeah. phone, VHS. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't imagine watching a VHS in a limousine, but I, it, that would have been high tech at that point. Yeah. That would have been serious. And CDs, yeah. I didn't move to. I didn't move to CDs until 1991 because I know it was after the U2 released the uh, Actung Baby album. Wow. Um, I got one of the I got one of the singles. For, actually, it was 92. Um, I, I didn't buy that. I bought that album on tape. I want to say, and then I remember the single one. I remember that was my first CD I ever bought. So that was I think that came out April 92, May 92. Yeah. So um, yeah, 1988. That's yeah, it's I mean, they were super pricey um, at that point, too. My yeah. brother had a CD player and, like, had to save up, like, a while. I didn't get my first CD player or CD till 95 um, mm-hmm. when I turned 18. I'm, I'm far behind on technology anyway, so, I mean. Mm-hmm. I didn't and the it. phone, though, as well. Phone in the car. Whew. Yeah. And he now t- it's like nothing. He definitely takes good uh, <laughs> good use of that. So, um, But Argyle's super sweet. Um, you know, he just drops him off, lets him know, hey, I'll be in the car park. You know, if it works out, give me a call. If you strike out, take it, you know, hotel. So um, that was pretty cool, obviously. So yeah. Yeah, a connection there already. So next we've got uh, John he comes up the elevator. Oh, he walks in the building. And if you really think about this digital screen in 1988, it's like, wow. It's like now it's, I mean, every day we have a screen like that on our phones, but um, yeah. that was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. This is where we find out where uh, Holly is using her maiden name. <laughs> And he's not very often. And then uh, 
security guards like, yeah, you know, this thing's pretty fancy. It'll even, uh, if you got to take a leak, it'll help you find your zipper. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and then John heads up the elevator, comes out, and uh, he can definitely tell he's not into these kind of parties. Uh, people are definitely having a good time. Uh, this this is definitely uh, 1988 American Yuppie Central right here. Mm-hmm. Um, some guy walks up and kisses him right off the bat. Not on the lips, but... Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he's a little taken by that. But then we get our first uh, meeting of uh, Mr. Joseph Takagi, um, played by... Oh, I didn't get his name. But we'll get into that later. But he's got some connections in this movie, too. Uh, but obviously, Takagi is very sympathetic. I think he understands the strains of their relationship, but he doesn't hold it against either of them, So, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. So um, mm-hmm. and he takes John to Holly's office where, you know, she's um, faxing. And this is our, our second introduction to Ellis where we find out he uh, likes to party. Yeah. So, and we definitely kind of get to And see- John notices as well. He's like, uh, you missed a bit. <laughs> I love that. He's like, Holly's policeman. He's like, oh, I missed some. Um, yeah, just one little lines like that just really were awesome. Um, yeah, and at that point, and then John being, you know, the New York um, waspy cop says, didn't realize that Japan celebrated Christmas. And Takagi's like, well, you know, Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so they got him a tape decks. Once again, kind of going, you know, this is only, I mean, it's for, I mean, World War II is basically how we view Vietnam at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, but, yeah, it's really, and they just really talk about it. It's a double celebration that they closed a big deal today. Um, he's bringing up how, how a big part of that was Holly. And then um, Holly wants, wants her to show her the Rolex, la da 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 So, now, did the corporation buy her the Rolex or did Ellis give her the role? That's. I couldn't. Yeah, I don't know why he was so keen. I was like, "Yeah, show the." And I, yeah, I couldn't quite figure that out either. Uh, obviously, you can tell that Ellis is obviously a person that he values things like that. Yeah, like yeah. he likes those status symbols. Like if they'd have been on the ground floor, he would have wanted to show John his car as well. Yeah. Like he's obviously impressed. He's obviously impressed by that, and he thinks that John would be impressed by that as well. Yeah, and uh, that is he's a. Uh, I'm not say typical American, but of that ilk of the '80s, so. Um, yeah. I'm not getting too deep into that. I'll get myself in trouble. But next, we get our first clip of the bad guys, and they're driving in their big van. And uh, the name on the van is Pacific Courier, which is kind of an inside joke. Uh, Pacific Courier actually translates to Carriers of Peace, uh-huh. which is kind of ironic because these guys are not carrying peace. They may have been carrying mm-hmm. pieces, but not peace. So, um, but I guess um, the screenwriter or McTeer or somebody. Um, I guess Pacific Carriers and Speed and a couple other movies too. Um, so I guess that's like a thing. So, uh, and then, and the nice thing too, like I said, with these, like um, the, the continuity, they worked really hard, like all the shots, like it was as the sun was going down. So they worked really hard to keep that all together, which you really kind of noticed in the scenes. It's like the first time it's like, you know, John shows up and then these guys show up. It's a little bit darker. So, um, yeah, that was something they really wanted because some movies just don't care. You know, they take a couple shots and one more, it's dark out and, love, you know, so you have to appreciate the attention to detail. So the one I appreciate that when they, they kind of had to, and it was the TV show 24. Yeah. Like they really had to pay attention to stuff like that. And then they could only film at certain times. And then 
once that time window had gone, you got to wait until the next day before you can do the same. Yeah, the attention to detail and things like that. For that reason, it's kind of lucky that it's filmed at night because once it's dark, it's dark. Right, yeah. Then so there's not much else you can do about that. But yeah, certainly in those opening scenes, things like that definitely make a difference. Yeah, 24, it's another show I've never seen, so. Mm. Was each was each season of 24 like a 24-hour period? And it was 24 hours. It was filmed in the whole point. It was uh, supposedly filmed in real time. So your one hour episode was literally a one hour window of how that story was developing, but they would flip from one scene to some other characters and you'd see what they're doing. And then you go to some other characters and then you'd come back to the main character, uh, Kiefer Sutherland to see what he's doing. And at the time it was just, to me, it was revolutionary. It was, I believe it was my first, it was either my first or second year I was in the States because I think I had to go back. I think I missed some. And then I watched the end of it, like the last 18 hours of it. And then when I went back to England, I remember buying the DVD set so I could watch catch up on the first six hours and I watched it again because I thought it was so good. During COVID, I actually went back and I kind of either rented them or bought them cheaply on eBay and went through the whole seasons again. Uh, Yeah, it's a show I really do enjoy. Oh, interesting. I kind of figured, but I mean, like sometimes you just figured it was just a name. So So it'd be like it was each season, like 24 hours or 24 episodes? Each season was filmed over one day. Wow. Yeah. Everything happened in 24 hours. So, yeah, he had to, <laughs> he really did have to work. I get, I'm wondering actually now I think about it, like how much is kind of based on this uh, John McClane character because he's also a character that's kind of a little flawed as well. Uh, like the family situation is not always perfect. And um, oh. yeah, but no, it's really interesting. The people who pick apart it go things like, how come you never see him go to the bathroom? It's like, oh my God. Okay, we can suspend, we can suspend this one yeah. a little bit. Sure we did somewhere along the line. So, um, but yeah, and then uh, the next scene we go to uh, John and Holly, and they're talking, and uh, they're kind of the tension like, oh, how is so and so, and la da da da. Um, we definitely leave some strained, um, you know. And Holly's like, well, you know, I mean, I do have a spare bedroom, and the kids love to see you. Um, and he's like, oh, and the kids miss you. And he's like, then she's like, I miss you too. And then John McClain puts his foot in his mouth. Didn't miss my last name, though, did you? La, da, 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 da. <laughs> and then they start arguing. They've been together for five minutes. So, um, you know, and this is definitely like we talked about earlier, like the screenplay, you know, what would happen if you died and you just had an argument with your wife? And this nailed it right here. Um, and then um, Holly's assistant comes in, says she wants to give a speech to the troops. And I think that lady played in um, – Oh my gosh, what was the name of that TV show? The Wonder Years, but that's another American TV show. So um famous for Jason Harvey, who was hitting the head with a cell phone by Eric Bischoff in 1990, but that's another story in itself. So <laughs> it all comes back to wrestling eventually, Graham. So it does. Um if you look hard enough, we already mentioned Hulk Hogan as well. There we go. We already had a couple of references in there. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll have a few more before we finish. Um, but yeah, then she leaves and John just starts slamming his head against the wall. It's like stupid, stupid, stupid. So, um, yeah, whoops. So then we walk in and, uh, like Carl and Theo, we don't know their names yet are walking in and, uh, Theo is talking to the big, tall, uh, blonde guy about the Lakers and, uh, they shoot the security guard, Mm -hmm. get in there. And, um, yeah, one thing they really mentioned is these guys make a lot of like dead jokes. You know, these guys are very non, you know, don't really care about human life. 
Yeah, because like, ooh, what do you say? I don't know. But uh, yeah. Is that like a James? I know James Bond does a lot of that though as well. Like he makes a lot of uh, like honey comments when um, somebody's about to die at all. Yeah. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm thinking Roger Moore used to do that a lot. And then I know uh, Sean Connery did too, but I don't know if that's where that comes from. Yeah. And if the characters are, if the characters are German as well, that kind of goes a little bit against that stereotype as well. Cause that's uh, from an English perspective anyway. The, yeah. One of the stereotypes of Germans is they don't really have a great sense of humor. So it, it's kind of weird that you joke about something like death. But Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, I do have a question about um, Theo later. So don't, I actually have it in my notes, so if you won't forget. But uh, then we clip uh, to the, this is our first uh, glimpse of Hans. And he just looks like a leader. You know, yeah. He walks out. He's very nicely dressed. Um, they're all loading the truck. And, you know, they've got all their missiles and their guns and everything. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they look very European, you know, mm-hmm. that's how I was explained. Um, and then Theo is working, he's getting all the computers and basically they close all the gates and all the doors. Um, mm-hmm. While our good friend Argyle is making long distance phone calls um, <laughs> in the parking garage. Uh, and then we clip to this guy, he's slicing out the phone lines. Um, <laughs> says Tony. Uh-huh. And then uh, his big macho brother um, takes a chainsaw and he's cutting them. But uh, he had to fix something so we get our first sense of a real sibling rivalry, mm-hmm. you know. And this is unfortunately the last time these two speak to each other. A little foreshadowing. So now there was one thing as they were walking in uh, that I that I would never oh, yeah. have noticed if I hadn't have seen the the kind of notes on the side. And it said, um, as the terrorists walk in, the one on the left is about to walk into the wall, and the camera cuts away just before he does because you said they're walking in that line together. And sure enough, the one who's on the left of the screen as we're looking to, the doorway oh, no. kind of narrows in. And if they hadn't have cut away at that point, he would have walked flat into the wall. So they had to cut the scene at that point. So I had never noticed that before. But once I saw it on the side, I was like, I, oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then Liz said, I mean, Tony, um, he's walking through. He's got the whole he's got the whole building memorized already. So these guys are obviously very well researched. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we cut to John McLean in the was he in the bathroom making? He was in the bathroom because he asked, is there any way to wash up? Okay. Because he'd obviously been on that long flight. So it's, I don't know how long it is from New York to uh, LA. I'm going to guess it's similar distance from England to um, yeah. the West Coast. So it's probably like seven or eight hours, I'm guessing. Um, the only six. Reason, you know, I don't know about you, Graham, but I don't have carpet in my bathroom. So. <laughs> <laughs> This um, is an office, though. Remember, this is a these yeah. are millionaires, so they're going to have. A, it's going to be a little bit more luxurious than. I, I guess so. I just I, I just meant practicality wise. It's not good to have carpet in the but, but you can you can wash that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you got millions of dollars, I guess you can. But uh, it's not fitted. Yeah, at least I hope not. So, <laughs> um, who knows? Uh, but yeah, this is where John McClane takes his shoes off and he's making fists with his toes. Mm-hmm. And uh, something I still also do to this day. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm a dork that way. So I'm like, huh, if that works. And then, plus with the yoga, I mean, you do a lot of crabbing with your toe, you know, the DDP yoga. So you also do a lot of fists with your toes that way. So, um, but he's calling Argyle. Um, they're chit chatting all up. And all of a sudden, uh, the phone line goes dead. Yeah. Dun, dun. Just get your cell phone out, right? Yeah. That's that's the thing when you watch some of these older shows now. Like so many of the plot lines go when you've got a cell phone. It yeah. kind of it's must have it must have made the art of storytelling much more complicated. And um, particularly for things like Seinfeld, like when they were getting 
there were so many of those episodes where it could have easily just been solved with a cell phone. Like when they were going to different cinemas, like, hey, where are you? We're at this cinema. Oh, we went to the wrong cinema. Okay, that's fine. We'll meet up in a little bit. Or we're lost in the parking lot. And we could. There's so yeah. many shows now that just, um, but the invention of the cell phone has made it much more complicated to, uh, yeah, someone tell some of those stories. Yeah. And a lot of the research I did, I listened to a uh, podcast called The Cinephiles. Um, and uh, they they reviewed um oh they review movies in general. This is the first time I've heard of said, You okay, Smokers? Hi, why don't you come say hi to Uncle Graham? That's the other cat, so come here, Smokes. Um <laughs> but yeah, and then one of the questions one of their viewers says, you know, if um all things considered, if they made die hard today, what would be the biggest change? And obviously cell phones. Yeah. Um you know, unless you could say that the terrorists or the, the bank robbers will say we don't even call them terrorists because I mean mm-hmm. Um, maybe they had some cell phone blocker thing, you know. Sure. I can yeah, imagine I mean, John McLean being now. somebody though who wouldn't necessarily want to carry a cell phone around with him though as well. Yeah. So I could imagine there's I, I get it gets the feeling that it could be one of those annoying annoyances. And um he would probably have to check in with his boss a little bit. Like I don't think he's somebody who follows all the rules all the time. So if he doesn't have a cell phone with him, then he can't be contacted and then he can well, I can apologize for it later and ask forgiveness rather than ask for permission. So I it's possible that he could have been one of those characters uh, if you had yeah. said it in today. You think John McClane's a rule breaker, huh? <laughs> I'm being sarcastic, by the way. So um but yeah, and then we cut and we hear some gunshots. And uh, John McClane grabs his gun like any cop would, and he is off and he sneaks off and runs up the stairs without his shoes. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. And, yeah, it's, I mean, what a very fascinating plot device. Like, who would think? I mean, I know it was in the book, but I mean, how'd that guy write that in the book? Like, who thinks of that? You know? Yeah. And as the terrorists are checking all the rooms, they didn't think for one second, oh, look, there's a pair of shoes here. I wonder who these belong to. And then when they get, gather everyone together, everyone's yeah. wearing shoes. Huh, why is that? Yeah, you know, I think they were too busy because they caught those two people doing the, the nasty. Uh-huh. Right? I couldn't watch that scene as a kid, so. <laughs> um, and then we get our first, uh, our first Han speech. Um, he comes in and he's just kind of laying out his intentions. Uh, that the Nakatomi Corporation has um, done all these things around the world, and he's appearing off as his European upper crust, and um, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes, starts running into Takagi's quote unquote life. And then, um, as a kid, I didn't understand when he said interned in Manzanawa from 42 to 43. As a kid, I didn't understand what that meant. Okay. Um, when did you kind of realize, did you kind of know that right off the bat? It's just like, oh shit, this guy's, I mean, he comes from, I mean, humble beginnings. So as an intern, I, I think I'd have been familiar with that word. I, I wouldn't have paid attention. I, I obviously don't remember that specific word in the film. I don't have that type of recall oh. at all. So, well, I mean, yeah, um, him and his family were taken. I mean, this is during the, they were here. I like to say, I would have been, yeah, I would have been the equivalent of like probably a so, um, a junior or a sophomore in high school at yeah. that time. So I'm pretty sure I would have been familiar with that word at that point. Yeah, so Takagi obviously is, I mean, you know, he spent his life poor as, you know, um, unfortunately Japanese people in the United States are not treated very well during World War II, but we won't get into that. Um, definitely gives him more of a human. Um, and then he starts to stand up, but Holly holds him back because she knows mm-hmm. this is not good. Mm-hmm. Um. And then just how they time this all so well off because he goes he goes through his whole spiel 
And then he says, father of five. And Takagi stands up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Now, I've just realized as you were talking then, I obviously didn't understand what it was. I read interned as in he was an intern for a company. Right. So you just mentioned they were treated poorly in World War II. I had not made that connection because obviously yeah. my, most of my World War II knowledge is obviously Europe-based. Right. So things like the situation you just talked about, I didn't know about that until I'd actually moved over here. Um, I found out things like that from uh, George Takei being like a, a Star Trek fan. And yeah. now George Takei being a lot more on social media, I kind of heard more about those stories from people like him. So yeah. no, I, in that case, then no, I hadn't realized that's what that was at all. Okay. Now, there was one part about this that to me made no sense though. And I'm, 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 I'm picking holes in things a lot right now. <laughs> but so he goes through, he knows the date he was born. He knows like his parents, he knows exactly every single modern thing, but he doesn't know what he looks like. <laughs> Come on, who's doing that research? There's a picture attached to that file. He knows exactly what he looks like. He could have grabbed him out straight away. That part didn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously it's it's nice so the internet's not as prevalent. So, but I'm sure he had a picture. He had a picture. He obviously had a picture. They had a picture of um, Hans Gruber on the news. Yeah. Um, afterwards, because they were like, "This is Hans Gruber," and they've uh, they've dis- they've said disassociated themselves from him. They had a picture of him on the news within minutes. So you're not telling me somebody has? Didn't they have? Was it six hundred something million stored in the vaults? I think that was the, the. You're not telling me somebody that important in a company they didn't have a picture. They normally have pictures like on the as you walk into the buildings as well. Right. If he knew all that stuff and all those facts, he must have known what he looked like. Yeah. There's no way that didn't happen. So there's a couple of theories here that either he thinks that everyone looks alike or the fact that he was just messing, playing psychological warfare, um, uh-huh. or it's just a bad plot line. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, with three. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you don't have a picture of the guy. I mean, but, you know, it was well done. Um, I thought, I mean, once again, uh, Rick... Mc- built the tension nicely, though. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, you've, you've got a picture here, so... Um, but yeah, and then um, this is where something I may have not noticed before. So obviously they're going up, they're heading up, and Hans is doing all kinds of talk and la da da da. And then he notices the Kagi suit, and he's got two himself. And then he says, "Arafat buys his there." So um, a very dated reference, but obviously it gets the point. So um, and then they take the Kagi to the, to the um to the boardroom, and I guess this quote here from Hans is actually misquoted. So he totally missed did this quote. Um, so my big question here is Hans not as educated as he's making himself out to be. Like someone kind of mentioned that maybe he really just is just a comic thief, which I mean he is. I mean he got kicked out of the well, he was a terrorist before though. Right. So he the others, I'm sure, are just common thieves, but he was a terrorist before. On these, um, of course, I'm sure he's got like he's multitasking on a big level right now. He like he's got a group of I think it's eleven people with him or something. But that's a lot going on of all the things that he's got to try and remember and try and organize at the same time. If he missed something or misspoke, like I do, <laughs> I do all that all the time with sometimes just one task on my. Mind. <laughs> I'm prepared to uh, I'm prepared to cut him a little bit of slack on something like that, but. Some yeah. of his references, though, are very specific. Like, he knows, I'm just looking from his suit, like, he knows exactly where that's from. Like, right. he obviously, that's a very specific knowledge. You wouldn't have that as a general person would not know that. I so he does that. have a very specific knowledge. Yeah, so it was just a question, like I said, just kind of doing some research. People think that maybe Hans wasn't 
who he said he was with this big fancy classical education. So, hmm. um, you know, one of those things, and then uh, they're going through, and I guess this bridge is another Frank Lloyd Wright bridge. Yep. And I guess their bridge was supposed to be built over the San Francisco Bay, I think. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Takagi's like, I don't care what you people think. We're going to help those people. Um, and they're building in Indonesia. I have been to Indonesia, just to say. It's a very beautiful country. My wife lived there for a year and a half. So, hmm. um, but yeah. And then they kind of walk him in the boardroom. And he says, Theo's got some questions for him. And he's like, some uh, fill in the blanks questions. So, and then uh, they're kind of interrogating him real quick. And then obviously Takagi's resistant, trying to play tough. He's like, you can't blackmail the executives. They'll just change the passwords. He's like, I'm not interested in blackmail. He's like, I'm interested in the $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds in the vault. I don't know what that means, but I know it's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's not just cash. Um, and then he, I mean, asking the question, like, what kind of terrorists are you guys? He's like, who said we were terrorists? So. Now, I'm not sure either, but isn't bonds kind of the ones where you kind of bet in on like the price of sugar in like a year's time or something like that? Mm-hmm. Or are they fu- futures? I think that's futures, but I think yeah. they're like the same. Unless I'm mixing those things up, I'm not sure if that's a. Yeah, like I'm in a good podcast wrote of research what a bearer bond was, but you know, uh, I'm not that. So it's a lot of money though. We get we yeah. get it. Yeah, you can a, cash that stuff in easily enough. It's a solid chunk of change. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what he said. Yeah, he said, like, you know, Gruber says, who, what kind of terrorists are we? And, you know, Takagi stands call, uh, tall and he refuses. And then at the end of the day, uh, gets head blown off. Mm-hmm. So Now, I did see in this one, we talked about how that he was um, a classically trained actor. And obviously, Alan Rickman's a, a really highly respected actor and quite rightly. Um, they had to cut away from that scene from him because it said that he was actually particularly squeamish. So when the even though they're using blanks and stuff and they use whatever effects they want to make the head appear to explode or whatever, he was really squeamish. So they they couldn't show you the look on his face as it was happening. So that's deliberately why they had to get that angle where you can see um, you can see his head, but you don't see Rickman in the same shot. And then, you know, and listen, I mean, you don't want it to be more about the blood. So I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I would be squeamish yeah. too. And obviously, with everything going on in 2022 with blanks, mm. so and I never thought of—I would never have given that a second thought if I hadn't read about that. Because if he's yeah. a cold-blooded murderer anyway, it's like he's pulled a gun, so you know he's cold-blooded. So I don't need to see the reaction on his face. The reaction with obviously the um, the exploding head is enough for you to go, "Oh shit, these guys <laughs> <Yeah>. are—they're uh, <laughs> not messing around then." Like yeah. I figured that they were going to use him as leverage, and first time, not obviously not now because I've seen it enough times. But the first times when you haven't seen it for perhaps watching it on the second time, you don't realize how quick that is. It's like, oh my gosh, they literally just took him back there. A couple of questions, boom. He's like, all right, we're not messing with you. We can do this plan with or without you. But if yeah. you could have helped us, that would have been great. And as you can't, we're not messing with you. Done. Yeah, you basically just added thirty minutes. But I mean, obviously, the time is on their side, so. But I think that they wanted to kill him anyway because they at this point they wanted to appear as terrorists. That's the whole plan. Yeah. So it kind of made sense that you'd want to shoot somebody and give that so when the FBI comes, oh, look, we're dealing with a terror situation. So you've got that misdirection in there straight away. So I think that – I don't think they even cared whether they gave them the, whether he gave them the numbers or whatever they were looking for. Yeah. They wanted a dead body so they can appear as terrorists, which was part of the plan. Yeah, and um, I did forget to mention that John McClane has snuck up and he's been on this floor the entire time. Um, uh-huh. and he witnesses this whole thing. Yep. Um, and then as he's leaving, he bumps into the table. His one of his few like 
mistakes like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then uh, John jumps and then Carl goes, looks for him, doesn't, you know, they don't find him or anything. So he's able to lock himself. And it was kind of tough um, to geographically remember where people were in the building and everything. So, um, but, you know, but he's able to lock himself behind a door and he's, he's safe for, for the moment. So, um, uh, oh, yeah. And once again, Carl and Theo, um, they were making jokes. You know, they bet $20 on this one. So there's more dead guy jokes. So, mm-hmm. um, and then Hans asked, like said, um, asked the you if you can break the code. And he says, you didn't bring me here for my charming personality. Also a line I like to use in life a lot. So <laughs> probably from this movie, um, in real quick, before I forget this. So assuming, you know, everything goes right. Do you think Hans would have killed Theo? How many of these people do you think he would have actually shared the money with? Uh, it's 660 million, um, like 66 million is a lot of money in 1988. Like at that point, does it really make any difference? So yeah, I was I, that I don't know. Um, perhaps Theo could have been one big God, but you'd assume his second in command would be, he would still, yeah. those two would still be close. I, I'm going to guess he would have delegated it anyway to the second in command. It was like, Hey, knock him off. We'll split it between the two of us. Yeah. Like I, I assume that they're probably, cl- we don't really know how long they've known each other. That, that's kind of the thing that makes it difficult. Like he's just been brought in for this one job. They known each other for a month. Have they known each other for five years? Cause I'm sure that's part, I'm sure that's part of it as well. Yeah, it'd be interesting. So, um, yeah, because, I mean, we don't know Theo's backstory and, you know, who knows. So uh, just one of those things um, that you would like to wonder. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and the, the big difference between the book and the movie is, um, you know, in the book, they actually were political terrorists. But yeah. obviously in the movie, they're playing terrorists with the politics as a cover story. So, yeah. Um, I think that works much better. I I think films generally work much better when there's a misdirection there, when you're buying into what you think is happening and then suddenly it's twisted on its head and you realize you've been deceived. Um, That tells you that that's a better story, right, in that way. So I think that works much better than when you can see everything coming straight away. It's like, oh, this step, then this step. Oh, yeah, I saw this all along. It's much better when you don't see it, so... Yeah, I mean, at the, I mean, if they had done it that way, I don't think um, us living in two different time zones would be sitting here on a Monday evening talking about the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, if it's you know, well, there's enough of those films. There's probably enough of those films anyway. It's it's yeah. all the little differences that we've already talked about, things that you don't expect to see in a film at this time that made it stand out, which yeah. is why we're yeah. still watching it so many years later. So, man, I love this movie so. Um, and thanks again for doing this, Graham. I know we're in the middle of recording, but I do want to thank you again. So um, I changed my rankings on my film. If anyone's asked me in the last uh, 15 years, what's my favorite film of all time? I've always said straight away, oh gosh, <laughs> I forgot it. Field of Dreams. Um, I, I love the film. I love that film. I love the, and even though I'm from England, I really appreciate the baseball side. I love the story of the... Uh, John and his well, another John John Kinsella and his dad as well and I just kind of like that dynamic I like the story as it's built up it's just a really wholesome story and that's always been my default answer and I'll kind of move the other films around in my top 10 but it's kind of been probably uh, certainly at Christmas when I was watching this again I, I and certainly when I re-watched this I, and I was kind of worried re-watching this I was like I watched this three months ago I was like this is probably going to be as much as I like this film I'm this is going to be tough and even three months after having seen it and having seen it so many times recently, 
I still love this. I'm. This is not just my favorite Christmas film of all time. This is my favorite film of all time right now. Now, will I be saying the same thing in five years' time? Possibly not. But Field of Dreams was my favorite film for at least 15 years. Huh. So that was why it was when you mentioned it, I was like, absolutely. I would love to. Because I normally, I because my wife does not is not interested in this type of film at all. Uh, my sons are too young to watch it right now. So while I've been kind of watching this again it has been kind of me watching it remembering when i was watching it when i was younger i did have a long gap when i didn't watch this film at all so i probably would have gone 20 years without watching it i'm gonna guess from probably from the mid 90s till probably about 2015 i might have picked it up again yeah so i went a long time without watching it uh so much so that some of the main storylines i'd totally forgotten about like I'd forgotten the situation with Al and what his deal was and why he was doing the job that he was. Yeah. I'd forgotten why he was in that position. And suddenly that's obviously, I know we're going to get to that much later on, but suddenly then that became kind of a, a really interesting focal point at the end of the film as well. So Yeah. Um, yeah. And ironically enough, listen, not only did I steal this VHS, but this is actually the first DVD and I didn't get a DVD player again until 2001. Uh, oh, I we when we first came because I don't I don't know if you know I probably haven't told you my. my oh. A group of us living in North Carolina, probably around ten British teachers, um, all living within probably about ten miles of each other. Some of us in the same complex, and we used to kind of hang out together. And one of the first weekends we went out, um, one of the females in the group hooked up with this American guy. Uh, she didn't come back with us that night. It's like, oh, I see you, bye-bye. I, I don't, I'm assuming we traded numbers to make sure that we could make sure she was okay and everything. And the next day, that was the talk. She's like, oh, my God, he had a DVD player. And we're all like, what? A DVD <laughs> player? Like, what? So that would have been mid-2020. Uh, sorry, mid-2000. And that DVDs were a huge thing. Uh, like, that was, that was kind of like him talking about in his limousine. Like, we have a VHS in here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was our equivalent thing. We were blown away that this guy had a DVD player. We thought that was like the coolest thing. So um, I'm going to, I was going to mention this at the end, but um, I've been, like I said, I've been watching this on Amazon. I went back just to check. I was looking at my ratings for all the other films. So in case we talk about it at the end, I was like, if we don't talk about it, we don't talk about it. And the fourth one, I don't particularly remember very well at all. I was like, I watched the trailer and I was like, I'm really sketchy on this one. Like I remember a couple of scenes, but like the rest of it's not really fitting with me. Fifth one, I definitely remembered. And obviously the first three, I don't remember. Um, I saw it was on Amazon. The whole five set is uh, $13.99 right now. So I bought that literally five minutes before I came on air with you. So I was like, next time, because this is my thing. I watched this at times one, which as Matt loves to wind people up and remind <laughs> me, I don't watch stuff at times one. So I had to watch this in, how long was the film? Was it about two hours and 10 yeah, minutes? Well, two, like well, two, 10, yeah. So having seen it so many times and it being part of my Christmas tradition, it takes two hours and 10 minutes. Uh, well, not next Christmas because now I got it on DVD so I can watch it at <laughs> times 2.7 and watch it at a slightly different speed. But yeah, so the five set right now on Amazon, $13.99 on DVD. I thought that was a pretty good deal. Wow. Because it's not on Netflix right now. So, yeah. And they're not all on Amazon. So, but yeah, I'm kind of curious to go back and watch that fourth one because that did not resonate with me at all, except for one scene. Yeah, four and five. I'm like, I think I saw both those on an airplane somewhere along, but I, yeah, I just, I was like, the, the one on the fourth one that really kind of 
kind of pop to use a wrestling term i kind of popped when i saw this so he's driving through some tunnel with his car and then he john rolls out the car but make sure that the car kind of like hits a brick but it sends it up into the air like a ramp thing and then the car goes into a helicopter and takes the helicopter out and i was like whoa <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous but i was like i do not remember that at all that, yeah, that was, did not seem familiar so i don't know if it's the fourth one or the fifth one but he's in a fighter jet and like the jet is hovering and like he gets out of the jet and it's just like I think that's the fifth one. That that one's familiar to me. Uh, that part is. That's when he's with his son. Yeah. I I don't I think I've only seen the second one once or twice, maybe. Uh, but the third one, I mean, I really enjoyed. I just suddenly realized I didn't even piece this together as I was watching those trailers. So the fourth one, um, one of the scenes is his daughter gets kidnapped because you can see him on the phone and they're like, hey, we need to talk to you. And he's like, Hey, daddy, I'm here. And then the fifth one is his son. That's obviously the kids in this film. I didn't even kind of, I didn't even piece it together that those the, I, well, I guess he could have had additional kids since then, but I'm assuming that's the same two kids. No, it's, I know, it, I, I know I'm pretty sure, yeah, because it was John Jr. Yeah, isn't John Jr. like some master like terrorist or something? He's a, he works for the CIA in the fifth film. That's the, yeah. The basic premise because when i read that i was like this doesn't look familiar and then when i watched the two minute clip i was like oh yeah i remember this one i remember yeah and then like yeah lucy lucy gets yeah so who knows so um sorry i probably told we we talked about going off on tangents I oh no that's i mean right off on one day. you mentioned dvds and suddenly i'm talking about stories with dvd players i'm buying a dvd and we went way off way I, off i remember um yeah it was august of 2001 and um, the I was working, uh, me and my ex were um, apartment managers and we had fired and evicted from our place and we broke up at the same time. So I just kind of, as a breakup present, bought myself a DVD player in this one. So yeah, my first time I yeah sitting in my new apartment by myself, a freshly single man, I uh, watched this movie. So that's what I thought mm-hmm. it was a movie. So anyways, back to the movie. <laughs> um the, uh, so we got Hans and Theo talking, and Theo kind of goes through each. Um, he can get the other six locks, la da da. But the seventh one is going to be to take a miracle. And Hans is like, mm-hmm. Well, Theo, it's the season for miracles. Mm-hmm. Christmas movie. Um, yeah. yeah. Then we cut to John. Uh, he's beating himself up, and uh, he likes to talk to himself. You know, yeah. he's a very human, and he's just like, why the fuck didn't you stop him, John? He's like, because he'd be dead too, then asshole. Um, <laughs> da, da, da. And he's kind of storming around the floor, and then he notices the alarm, fire alarm, and he pulls the fire alarm. Very good yeah. idea. Um, I don't know why I just didn't get on a cell phone and make a phone. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but obviously, Hans has prepared for this. Um, Hans realizes the fire alarm. Uh, he has a security guard call 911 and I uh, canceled the fire alarm, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a very funny scene where John's, you know, pounding on the window, la, da, da, come to daddy, kiss your Dalmatian, all this good stuff. And then um, Hans sends up and then they're like, what floor is that on? And they kind of piece together that they heard somebody possibly. So they sent Tony up there uh, to investigate. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Tony comes in and he says, um, your alarm's been called off, blah, 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 blah. Tries shooting him. Mom McLean, or McLean finally kind of corners him. And uh, Tony puts up a good fight. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the funny scene where McLean's on his back and he's running around doing a spin and Tony's shooting like the whole floor. Uh, and the fight goes down the stairs and he rolls him down and he breaks his neck. 
And that's the one where the stunt double was used for Bruce Willis. That, yeah. that was the, I didn't write it in my notes for that, but I know that was the first time I saw it. Yeah, which, which makes sense. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> so. If, if it never been mentioned before, like I obviously know you have stuntmen in films. I understand that. But to be honest, with it just being a fight, I didn't really think that they would have, in my head, I'm like, that's something an actor can do. Like you can, we understand wrestling. You can throw like pretend punches and fake punches yeah. and not always, you can change that camera angle. To, so I didn't even really think about that necessarily, but that would have, so if it hadn't mentioned it, I'd never thought about it in the previous ones. But I think Bruce Willis might've taken a bar most of the other parts of the fight though. Yeah, uh, he must've done that. Yeah. But you could, you could clearly tell it wasn't him. On, yeah. On definitely that, in that particular scene. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, John kills him. He uh, takes his cigarettes, his ID. Um, and he's kind of going through his wallet and all of a sudden, and then there's the classic line of the nine million terrorists in the world. I've got to kill one with uh, feet smaller than my sister. So John <laughs> McClane still doesn't have it. <laughs> um, you know, and then I guess in the book too, I guess um, that happened, but he doesn't want to wear dead man's shoes. I'm like, I'm sorry if I'm running around. I'm taking that. Yes. So, um, but this is classic, though. Um, you know, he sends Tony down the elevator, and he's got a note for everybody. Uh, <laughs> and what's uh, what's that note say, uh, Graham? I bet you could probably read it from your T-shirt. Well, this is the thing. So I'm going to say, obviously, everyone who's just listening right now has no idea. But I am wearing I, – I t- told you I bought five diehard Christmas-related uh, T-shirts on. And to begin with, I was kind of slumped down, so you can only see uh, to my chin. And then when we talked about the Christmas element of it, I was like, well, all right, then I can sit up now. So it's ho, ho, ho. I, oh, sorry, I have a ma- now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. And my T-shirt's actually got Bruce Willis wearing a, a Santa hat on, so. It, it's yep. awesome, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. You see, and then they pulled on the shirt and says, now I've got ho, ho, ho. So, um, yeah, all the while, actually, John McClane's actually on top of the elevator um, taking yeah. notes. Um, and then this is something I didn't really realize, but he was very fortuitous in being able to kill Tony first. Because um, obviously, Tony being Carl's brother, Carl loses it. Obviously, it's his brother. Um, but, I mean, yeah. if Carl had listened to Hans at all during the movie, and we'll get into it, McClane probably be dead. You know, but because he's so hell bent on killing him and not doing the right thing, um, you know, that's one of those things I didn't pick up on until this time. I'm like, ah, good point. I never thought of that. So, and then we, uh, well, they just thought it was just office workers in there. So they didn't know that there was going to be some maverick cop who was a New York cop in there who was going right. to be able to foil their plans. They thought they'd figured out every eventuality, like the security guard. They knew that was going to be easy. You just walk in, talk about the Lakers game, boom, yep. pop him on in the head. And then the security guard is probably bound aside by the elevator. Same thing. He's not really expecting anything. So, yeah, they figured once they'd done that part, they were home and dry pretty much. But, yeah, yep. that little – the wild card element in there messed it all up. And then um, – so then we uh, – Theo has finally figured out the password. And the password is a Akagi, uh, which translates to Red Castle. Um, and then their business – but um, the funny thing about this, though, so um, the character that played Joe Takagi was actually in the movie Midway, and the Akagi was a boat that sunk in um, the re- in real life, sank in the uh, the Battle of Midway. 
So mm. kind of some weird synergy. So no one knows if that was intentional, just a really weird coincidence. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Steve, Stone Cold Steve Austin coming out at three hours and 16 minutes of WrestleMania was not a coincidence, by the way. Um, that that would be one hell of a coincidence. No one McMahon's manic thing for per- perfection. I think that was on purpose, but But the fact that they didn't announce that, though? Good point. He would be dying to announce that show. He must have been rubbing his hands together when that person noticed that on the internet then. Yeah. So, who knows? Um, (laughs) One person I don't know what they're ever going to do with Vince McMahon. So, Um, yeah. And then uh, next clip is we've got their uh, the elevator shoot. We don't know why it's going to the roof. Oh, that's right, because they're working on the roof. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So McLean's on top of the roof, um, but I guess this, yeah, this was Bruce Willis the entire time. And that clip they show of him getting a little scared, he was legit like, oh, shit, I have to duck down. So that was him. Um, and now Bruce Willis is on the roof. Um, yeah, and Carl, and yeah, they, oh, Hans had mentioned earlier that they called um, Carl and Thomas brothers dead. And obviously Carl is fucking livid. Um yeah, and then Hans is trying to calm him down, and this is where he mentions, like, yeah, we want to neutralize him to claim until the police get here, and then they're going to spend hours wasting time trying to negotiate, and then he can tear the building up with him, but till then, just neutralize him. Mm-hmm. Didn't work, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, and then at this point, they go to Holly and Ellis, and Holly realized John is still alive. And, uh, yeah, Ellis is scared, and he's just, John's going to mess this up, and you know, Holly gets very defensive. She's like, what's he doing? Um, he's, she's like, his job. He's like, his job's 3,000 miles away. He should be dead so I can move in on you. La, 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 la. So, Alice has very few redeeming qualities except for one, which we'll get into later on. But what a prick. Yeah. So, yeah. well done. Yeah, well acted, by the way. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say he's power hungry. He's... He's living that high life. He's taking his drugs. He's trying to get in with Harley, and uh, nope. he's obviously fairly high in that chain on the in command. So yeah, he's he's just loving that power. Yeah, whatever he's been doing in his life so far has worked to get him into that position. So at that point, he's not going to change his style. So yeah, like the dynamic between him and Takagi too. You kind of wonder like. Did he come over like with the acquisition? Because it seems like Nakatomi had bought in somebody and he, he's somebody that, you know, so who knows what their relationship was like. So I don't like Ellis. Yeah. So well done. So I love when people are, are so good enough where you don't like them. So good heel. Good yeah. heel work. Yeah. Great heel work. And that's, the, and that's the weird thing about Hans too is like, I mean, you hate him, but you don't hate him. You know, at the same time, you kind of respect him in a weird way. So, but yeah, like McTiernan said, he didn't want to make this a terrorist movie. Yeah, and you know, he if- never loses. He never loses control. Like he's not hang. He's not angry at any point. So he's always thoughtful. Like, yeah, he shot the owner, but besides, but he's generally a calm person. <laughs> he's a thinking person as well. Yeah. And I think that's why it's not like if he was busy yelling at everyone and getting in people's faces, and if he was like shooting his own people in the back and stuff, then it'd be easier to. But no, he's not kind of really doing any of that stuff. Yeah. I think he wants to kind of get through it with as little as damage as possible. Like he just wants to get the locks open, get the bonds. Getting his ambulance. Oh, I did miss that part when you were talking about the uh, ambulance. They were getting all uh, the truck. They were getting all the stuff off there. 
No ambulance in the back of the truck, though. No. That was one of the little errors, continuity errors for, for later. Yeah. When we get to that. It was weird because they said they couldn't fit the ambulance in the truck. But I uh-huh. watched, but I mean, you clearly, they didn't cut it out. So I don't know if maybe it was a different truck and they had to like, like make a fake truck. Because later on in the movie, you see the ambulance come out of it. But yeah. Yeah, you do. It just wasn't in there when you saw it in the first scene as they came. Yep. Out. That's right. I forgot about that. So, uh-huh. uh, and then we cut to McLean. He's on the roof because uh, now he's got a radio. He yeah. stole a radio from Tony and he gets on the special emergency channel and he's calling a terrorist threat. And then uh, the dispatcher kind of looks and she realizes the same address as the false fire alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's telling, you know, McLean's telling him everything, you know. Um, oh, he's telling him everything. And they kind of clip to Hans and, and the terrorist like, oh, he's telling them everything. He's like, and Hans is like, well, that just happens to be necessary. Um, oh, and then they figure out that he's on the roofs and they send some guys up there. And um, I did, I wasn't, you talk about Hans not being that clever. They were like, where is he calling from? <laughs> like yeah. pretty obvious. Like, I don't know if 30 years later, that's just more obvious that it would be from the roof because that would be more open signal. But that was like instantly, it was obvious. Where else could he been? They would kind of gave it a few seconds thought. It should have been straight away. He's obviously on the roof. Go get him. Um, that lady did not give him, did not take that call very seriously. I was very unimpressed with, like, just no credibility at all. It's like, no shit, lady. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, this, um, is, this is a criminal offense to be using this. <laughs> I was like, do you want to listen to what he's saying first? Like, you'd at least want to check all those details. Like, I don't know if it was the end of her. Well, I guess it once again, this is Christmas Eve, right? She probably yeah. wants to be back with her family, and she doesn't want to be dicking around with somebody who's like, making a false claim at this point because somebody's going to have yeah. to check that, and they're going to not be with their families on Christmas. So I guess perhaps that was why she was a little bit, but, but she just was, uh, yeah, she didn't give, she wasn't taking it seriously. I didn't think. Yeah. Oh no, not at all. And then that was very well done. But at the, at the same time too, like I said, I mean, this, this is 13 years before nine 11 too. I mean, the world yeah. changed. So, um, yeah. you know, so, but I mean, he's using all the proper language. I would at least give him a listen, but of I mean, course, it, yeah. you know, obviously the story doesn't happen, but, um, now, I think the other thing is, like, in a normal situation, he could have said, like, hey, my name is John McLean, badge number this, I'm from New York. But he knew Hans was listening as well. Right. So at this point, he hasn't given away his identity. So that did make it a little difficult. Like, he wants yeah. to – and he's trying to – well, I don't think he even wants Hans to know at this point that he's even a police officer. It's just oh, no. some guy who's – I think the phrase he used later is a fly in the ointment. Um, yep. So, uh, yeah, so I guess he, that makes it a little difficult to convey all that information. Um, although Al picks up on it straight away. Like, he's like, yeah. uh, some of the things, like he mentions, like, I know this is later in the show, but it's like, um, like he can pick up, like, on a, a dodgy ID or something. And, like, he gives them vibes of being like a cop. Whereas the person who was taking his call didn't have any of those clues at all. She just was, yeah, you're, you're wasting our time, get off the line, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, yeah she, she didn't seem to be very observant. No, and I thought it was very well done that they had mentioned that it was because the false alarm not more than 10 minutes earlier. Um, kind of kind of helps her, you know, not excusing her uh, for someone that's worked, you know, dispatch before. I mean, she did not do a good job at all. Uh, but like you said, actually, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, it's Christmas Eve. She doesn't give a fuck. No, she's supposed um, to get home. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is like a literally, t- my shift's about to be done and you're going to put this on Dang. us? Like, hell no. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's weird. You forget it's Christmas Eve, but. But that's the other reason why this, 
if this was just on a random day, then they would have been like, sure, nothing's going on. Let's go check this out. Yeah. So that it, for that reason, it has to be with the, the positioning of the, 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 the whole thing around Christmas Eve is pivotal. Yeah. Like that makes huge difference to a lot of these things. It's what makes it a Christmas movie. Um, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, here. And then, uh, so Carl goes up with two other guys and uh, we notice Carl's got a much bigger gun than everyone else. Um, there's a lot said in this, in this scene without um, words being spoken. Obviously Carl says, uh-huh. leave him to me, but the other guys are scared of him. So this is where Carl fucks up because if he let those other guys kill McLean instead of chasing him, this all be over, but he wants uh-huh. him for himself. Um, and these guys are scared shitless. I mean, if I saw a big um, German dude with a big ass gun, I'd probably be intimidated too. So I don't care if he's a ballet dancer or not. So, um, but yeah. And then, uh, Oh yeah, yeah. So he says no one gets to or no one gets to kill him but me. Um, and then we switch back to the dispatcher, and then she says, um, "This is an emergency channel line." He's like, "No shit, lady. What does it sound like? I'm ordering a pizza." <laughs> He's like, "Well, <laughs> if this continues, I, I mean, if this is a true emergency, call nine one one or off the report. This is an SEC violation." He's like, "Good, report me. Come the fuck down here and arrest me." <laughs> and then the shots go off. She's like, "Ow!" And then she's uh-huh. like, "Okay." Maybe I'll send the car. Um, we'll just send one. <laughs> we'll just send yeah. one. Somebody who's like, we don't really think it's anything still, but I mean, she sure. might have thought at that time that uh, John had fired the shot. Like, if there's some crazy person on the roof, but even if that's true and it was him, you still want a crazy person off the roof or uh, check it. Well, I guess he could, he could have been anywhere. You still want to check that out. Yeah. So, um, didn't do great. But I mean that that's being nitpicky. But um, then we cut to Al Powell, um, the mm-hmm. aforementioned original Johnson, and he's in the convenience store buying Twinkies, <laughs> lots of Twinkies. <laughs> um, and then uh, the the clerk, um, as being a person, I've also worked in the gas station. I, I identify with the clerk, and he's just kind of giving him the side eye. And I was uh-huh. like, my wife, he's like, uh huh, she's <laughs> pregnant. Uh huh. Bag it, um, which was which, well, pretty funny back, um, funny, um, pretty funny interaction. And uh, yeah. Al Paul's walking out of the walking out of the store. And what happens to be playing in the store? Did you notice the music by any chance? Oh, I did not. No, yeah, I didn't write anything down from the scene at all. Uh, that one was yeah. It was um, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. So, ah, I um, was humming that earlier. It kind of yeah, it does yeah. come up a lot during the. Uh, during the rest of the film, but yeah, it definitely gets into your head for sure. But no, I did not notice that was on in the store. Yeah. Um, once again, I mean, um, Michael Kamen did great with the music in this movie. Um, yeah. it's, it's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, and gas is 74 cents. Um, Oh, nice spot. Yeah. Nice so, spot. It's like, uh, and then Paul looks down the street and just sees flashes on the top of the building. And then he gets a little bit of a giddy up. It's like, huh, maybe, um, and then we go to um, the bad guys are trying to um, corner McLean, uh, push him towards Carl while Carl's stalking him. Uh, they scare him into a room with a fan, and uh, McLean's able to stop the fan and slides through and escapes for now. That's uh-huh. cool. I like that scene. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we have. Now, one- you mentioned, so this is 88, and you just said gas was 74 cents. So, I know when I moved in 2000, people, you know, I can't remember what gas was. It's probably like 150, something like that, 175. I don't remember exactly. And people would talk about, oh, I remember when gas was under a dollar a gallon. 
things yeah. like this. And I actually paid that one time. I remember taking a picture the first time I saw gas under a dollar. I was it was in the south somewhere. It was like on way to a Braves game, I think. It was like ninety nine cents. I took a picture of it because I was like, oh, that's so cool. And then um, on another trip, I do remember filling up at one point. It was like eighty three cents, early two thousands. This is so yeah, that is cheap. I would say now I'm I'm not sure what you're paying where you are, but it's basically four dollars a gallon right now. Yeah, we're both the same here with a little bit of change. I paid a little less. I paid. 380 today um one that's much cheaper than the surrounding ones all the ones around it were like 405 415 420 um and this one's always cheaper than everybody else 380 i was like boom take my 380 a gallon i'll fill up still nearly 50 dollars to fill up but yeah 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 we paid uh we paid three set well 380 i mean i love how they put 379 9.9 which it's 380 for um, yeah 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 um but for people that are listening to this in the future um, Graham and I are recording this, uh, March of 2022. Uh, April. Are, oh, it is April. Oh shit. Yeah. That's right. Opening day start. <laughs> it's going to be Easter Sunday this weekend. Oh, that's right. I'm, well, I've got. <laughs> it's the 11th. Yeah. We've, and I'm we've the been asshole. in April for nearly two weeks. Yeah. And I'm the asshole. It's got two wrestling shows and working a brewer game on. So. <laughs> you know that because baseball season started as well. I, so, you know, it's got to be April. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, it's, been, it's been a long week. <laughs> But uh, frame of reference for people who are listening to like in 2030, um, we are two years removed from the beginning of a pandemic um, where I actually filled up my car at 69 cents a gallon two years ago. Shut uh, up. Um, when the price of the pandemic started. Now, um, to clarify that, so yeah, the, I mean, the price has plummeted during the pandemic. It, it, it's going to happen. Um, but I also have a grocery card, so yeah. we get to, we get uh, ten cents off every hundred dollars spent on the grocery card. So it's sixty cents off because he spent six hundred dollars at the grocery store the month before. So yeah, I've got a picture of it said seventy, yeah, sixty nine nice. cents a gallon. Um, but that's not the norm. Wow, that's that's a worldwide pandemic for everyone. No. So, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, let's see. I think in twenty thirty, people still remember this pandemic. They should, yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> hope so. Um, <laughs> This, oh yeah, we're talking about the fan. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, and there we um, McLean scurries to the elevator shaft. Unless it was, I mean, they did it the best they could, but it was tough to figure out where everything was in going on. Yeah. Uh, but there was the picture of the naked ladies. Well, on before you get to before you get to that, then were you allowed because you weren't allowed to watch the scene then going before this then, right? Because they had the uh, Playmate poster up, the Playboy oh, Playmate my mom, poster. I don't know if my mom missed that one. It was just, yeah, the the, the couple making out in the beginning. I guess live. You got away with that? Yeah, I guess picture boobies were okay, but I guess live boobies were against the rules. Gotcha. So uh-huh. the person that was in that poster was uh, Pamela Stein. And there were actually two other um, Playmates in this film. One of them you just talked about, the couple that were about to have sex as they were coming in through the door. That was one of the other ones. I don't know the name of that person. And right at the start of the film, um, as he's waiting in the airport and the woman comes up and gives that guy a big hug, she was also a former Playboy Playmate as well. That came up on the little X-ray notes on Amazon as well. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was three of them within the film. One of them was obviously just a picture, but there were two other Playmates who were physically in the film as well. Interesting. Well, I did not know that. Hmm. Learn something new every day, so. Um, Yeah, let me get John McClane screen to the elevator. Um, of course, he realizes he's trapped and he's going to have to go down the elevator shaft. Um, mm-hmm. Not having a good day with heights. <laughs> <You> know, starting <laughs> not with, really. Um, 
So of course, you know, he rigs his gun in uh, the gun strap and he, um, he's scurrying down there and he's scaling down to the next floor. Um, now this was not Bruce Willis, but I guess, you know, how he slipped and he goes down there. That was uh-huh. a legit. So that actually happened to the guy that did it. They just left uh-huh. a shot in there. Cause originally he was just supposed to grab the next floor down. Yeah. Like, wow. That looks really fucking cool. I mean, there's no yeah. way if you're falling down that shaft. You're going to be able to catch that obviously. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, he fell down into a pad, obviously. Um, you sure, know, sure, sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess that was a happy accident. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And there then, was a few of the things actually in this that were improvised because they said that was one of the reasons that they actually liked. Um, I think that's why they liked Alan Rickman, that his ability to be able to uh, improvise and come up yeah. with different phrases. And they actually picked him up for a, a later film because of that. I can't remember what it was. It was some 1995 film. I want to say it was, uh, actually it might have been Bruce who was picked up. I think it was 12 Monkeys. I think Terry Gilliam, I think it is. I think saw that Bruce was uh, c- could improvise for this and that kind of got him that job, um, well, I guess, seven years later. But oh. there was a few other ones as well. Ellis, I know I got on notes later, he did improvise the scene. There were a few things in here that were improvised and yeah. I know there's a very famous improvisation that we'll get to in a little bit as well. So yeah, there was kind of a few of those things in the film that weren't planned, but actually worked out better and so they kind of just went with it. It's smart when a director realizes that. Yeah. Yeah, listen, um, shout out to my buddy Josh when we talked about, because um, Brian De Palma did Carlito's Way, and um, John, John or McTiernan like De Palma, like he's very picky about like the bat or like the setting or like that or like, I mean, the things he's not, how am I not explaining it? But like the physical things, like the tree has to be here, there, there. But he's very liberal letting the actors act and improvise, which yeah. sometimes is creates happy. So it's, it's a good sign of a, a great director, so. Um, I'm interested to see which uh, improvisation because I only have a couple of them. So I know we talked about um, comedies and we talked about Seinfeld earlier. I don't know if you're a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm, but that's another one that I love. And that's highly improvised. Like they're literally just told this is the basics of the scene. And then there's no lyrics. There's no uh, script at all. And it all just they'll sometimes run it through two or three times just so they can get the best one they can. But yeah, some of those improvised things really work out really well. I've maybe seen 10 episodes of Seinfeld. Oh. And seven of them were like within the past three months. Okay. So, but I am aware of Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. I mean, I know what it is. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, But yeah, so basically John uh, McClane falls down an elevator shaft, but he's able to catch himself on one of them. He crawls into an air duct. Um, He crawls in there and he lights his zippo. And this is where we get the line. Now I know what TV dinner feels like. <laughs> um, but yeah, but the bad guys come in and they see, uh, they see McLean's you know the light. So they know which floor he's on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I think then, he has a quote here as well. I wrote it down. It's like, come to the coast. Oh yeah. Left. Like he's talking to himself again. I'm not, I know it's, I put the elevator shaft. So I know it's just after that point, but I'm not sure. Yep, how you're right. Yeah. So after, um, yeah. So after he turns out that he has like, come to the, uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Carl comes down um, and they know which floor he's on he figures out the air duct so he lights up the air duct now I thought this was a little tacky um, he stops shooting and he just misses McLean by like a couple inches I'm like mm-hmm. alright I mean okay I mean you get the point so the great shot though um, of McLean sitting in the air duct and then just the hole the bullet coming through um, and then Carl starts poking you know to see la da 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 you know where uh, and then all of a sudden uh the call comes, the polizza, polizza. 
So um, the police are now here. So um, we got cool. Al. Yeah. Yeah. Al Paul's here. And another quick note, um, you know, they're, they're giving Hans the update and um, yeah. And they're, he's kind of screaming at them. We're not screaming what to do. And he says, neutralize him, close down the elevator shaft. Da, 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 da. And Carl just shuts off the radio. Yes. Yeah. So like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to kill this fucker. So, yep. Um, Al Powell drives around, uh, like you, Stevie wonder, um, that is a quote from McLean later on. I'm not being <laughs> that guy. Cause I am a fan of Stevie wonder's music, by the way. Um, but he definitely does kind of like a cursory look. He drives around the building, kind of concludes mm-hmm. the fire alarm. He goes in, talks to Steve, um, you know, he only goes in though. Cause on the second loop around, he's like, Oh, there's a security guard in there. I'll just go chat with him. Like, I don't think if that security guard had been there, if they hadn't have posted somebody, you almost kind of get the feeling like he would have driven off and that would have been the end of it. But. Yeah. Um, they talk about, um, football and he had money on the game and, um, that's uh, Yuli, the security guard, um, which he had. A, so I don't know if he was from the States or not, because um, I don't this is really the only time you hear him speak. Um, but he looks European, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, and then McLean's just watching. Like he said, who the fuck's driving it? Stevie Wonder. Uh, <laughs> and then McLean's sitting there trying to break the window with a chair. And the funny thing is, I mean, so that's really McLean, but it took him forever. Um, I think the chair kept breaking instead of the window. Um, so you want solid glass though. If you're on like the 35th floor of a building, you would want solid glass up there. Yeah. You don't want something that's easily, that's that flimsy, that it could just break that easily. Yeah. And I think, and I think, yeah, I think this scene was actually filmed because a lot of the stuff was filmed in the building. Obviously some stuff was not, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's, yeah, that's a good point. So um, this is probably a legit, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was just funny. And there's some funny outtakes of that one. So, uh, but as he's breaking the window, two bad guys come in. The first one's just screaming, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot. The other guy comes up behind him. Um, he ducks and uh, McLean shoots him. Uh, he shoots the first guy. And then the other, um, John scurries in the table and the other guy's, you know, shooting the table. Um, very interesting table. Like I said, with the S's and like, like the curves and everything. Yeah. Um, you know, so I guess that was done on purpose thematically i don't know i'm not that smart but uh yeah and then um he comes to the end of the team he's like you're at the end of the table pal i you know next time you get to um you get a chance to shoot somebody don't hesitate and the mclean lights him up so yeah he sure shoots the guy and then uh and thanks him for the advice yeah <laughs> and then um paul's getting ready to leave um we've now broken the window um and he's driving off and great camera angle. I still have no idea how they did this, mm-hmm. uh, but you just see a body flying into the windshield. So good. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And then, uh, yeah, Paul's driving back screaming, la da da da. And McLean's like, welcome to the party, pal. Um, <laughs> and then I don't understand what, I mean, is McLean shooting at him on purpose? Or, I mean, why? He- I think he just needs to get his attention and, like, hey, look, this is real. So you need more people out here. That's his only aim. He wants people out there. And um, I think this makes it pretty clear. But he's being fired at. I don't think it's just McLean who's firing at the cop at this point, though, is it? See, I wondered that, too, because it looked like there's shots coming from another spot, too. 
I thought the terrorists were firing him as well because I think they've already been bust. Once the body falls on them, I think they realize game's up. Now we just need to stop him getting the message back to yeah. headquarters. And I think that's when they join in on the firing as well. That that's how I read it. And that that might be wrong though. Um yeah. But yeah, he's driving like crazy, he's getting shot at, he eventually crashes. I love how he comes out of the, the car and just piles of Twinkies. <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah. And then they, the, they got the great shot. Argyle's partying in the limbo, and he's going. You can see totally <laughs> oblivious. Yeah. Uh, poor. I'm not sure if it's that exact shot, but he's there partying like with the bear. The yep. bear's still there, prominently seated as well. Yep. Good stuff. Um, and then uh, we cut to um, I think Richard Thornburg, I think is his name, but uh, in my notes I have him as Dickhead Reporter. So I'm going for it. I got one more. Now I don't know if I wrote my notes out of sequence then, but I actually have at this point that Hans and John are talking to each other. So this is the first time that they've actually physically interacted with each other. Because I'm guessing that John has the the uh, walkie-talkie at this point. What and I talking? didn't write down any more, so I, I should have written down a little bit more. My notes are a little incomplete. Oh, um, I think he, I think that's just after this. Uh, oh, perhaps I wrote it in the wrong order then. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Because it's just real quick, a real quick, um, Thornburg just saying, um, you know, I know Wolfgang, he's talking about Wolfgang Punk as well. Wolfgang Puck's got all his fancies, he reservations. But then here's Powell's emergency call go over the scanner. Mm-hmm. Um, then he wants to grab a car. And then all of a sudden all, um, and, um, all the cavalry show up, blah, 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 And um, Pond seems awfully calm. He's like, please, for necessary. Um, oh, yeah, McLean starts talking to him. He starts rallying. Yeah, because here he starts rallying Hans up. Yeah, he starts digging him up. And um, and then Hans is like, he's starting to dig for information. He's like, what are you, some kind of security guard? He's like, ah, wrong answer. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, this, I'm not sure if this is a conversation, but this might be where he's talking about John Wayne as well. And he says, Well, yeah. I always kind of preferred Roy Rogers myself. Yeah. And all the while McLean's going through the bag, and um, you know, Hans is sending people up, and then um he's he's wondering if uh, he's lying about the one guy. Um yeah, and then Hans gets back on the right, he starts to insult the Americans. What are you someone watch too much TV comparing to co- uh cowboys? And this is where the famous line goes. Yippee-ki-yay, mother- I guess where he tells him he's more partial to Roy Rogers, and he's like, mm-hmm. yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, I yeah. think it said, I think as I was looking through one other thing, it said, I think it said it was the 98 best quote in films. I can't remember who voted on it. I'm sure they've probably done it multiple times, but it was 98 out of, uh, in the top 100 uh, lines uttered in films of all time. I remember seeing that randomly. I remember numbers. I don't remember, unfortunately, with, uh, <laughs> who came up with the, who did the uh, voting on that one. But yeah, wow. it is. It's very memorable. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, I mean, I still say it all the time. So I'm throwing of things. Course, yeah, I'm not supposed to be so. Um, yeah. So we cut back to the the jerk face reporter. Um, here he's arguing with uh, the director. He wants a truck. Uh, yep. They keep arguing. They keep arguing. Um, and they go live. And just the anchor is just your typical TV anchor. Yeah. He's so lost. He's like, what? What? Oh, like, uh, we're uh, live. Yeah. yeah. And I always wondered, I know this is in the movie Anchorman, but do Anchorman, do they wear pants? I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> wear pants under theirs. Um, yes, I'm sure they do. I don't think you have to, but yes. Um, I don't see why you wouldn't. Why would you take your pants off? You obviously get to, when you drive into work, you're obviously wearing pants. Why would you take them off while you're recording? That don't make any sense. 
I don't know. I wouldn't say obviously, Graham. I mean, I don't wear pants. There was also a female reporter there as well. Do they follow similar rules? Like, I just don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. Whenever I don't have to wear pants, Graham, I don't. So, (laughs) but that's a work environment, though. Like, (laughs) you're. Uh, never oh. mind, never mind. All right, we're, <laughs> we, might be not, we might not have any common ground on this one. Uh, as a teacher, I, I'm pretty much, I got to wear pants. Uh, uh, yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. So um, <laughs> I cannot get around that one. Fair enough, yeah. It's a little different as a bartender. I mean, it's not a big deal if you get drunk and take your pants off and set things on fire. I think the only exception was, and I normally stay pretty professional, actually. Um, when we were doing the Zoom calls during the pandemic, I did actually used to put jeans on or in the summer I'd have shorts on. Yeah. Um, I would occasionally, I think I only did it like once or twice. I, I had like pajama bottoms on. I had like comfy pants on. It's like, ah, yeah. no one can see anyway. Like, who's going to know? Yeah. i got no idea. Actually, as it's kind of getting a little late tonight, I actually got my pajama bottoms on early. Uh, oh, I mean, just the camera so you can see my wonderful WWE pants. There you, oh, go. you, can, see the, you yeah. can see the little logo there. But um, yeah, no, I I can't imagine yeah. teaching without pants. That would just be weird. No, that would be odd. So Even through Zoom. Want to say hi to Graham? Hi, Graham. Hey. Sorry for, the, sorry for the interruption. I saw you for a second. Hi there. I can hi. see you now. <laughs> yeah, so you guys didn't get to meet in Philadelphia in person, but oh, hey, let me. While we got a quick stop here, let me let the cat out. She's trying to she's trying to work her way out the room. Okay, I'll, I'll, let her out. I'll throw a pause. All right, high fivers. We'll be right back. On. All right, high fivers. We're back after a quick little break. There, I could have edited that out. What would the fun of that have been? So, um, yeah. So basically, yeah, Thornburg. He grabs a truck. Um, he bullies the director, and he's heading to the scene. Uh, next, we cut to Carl and the boys. They come and they let Hans know uh, that he wasn't lying uh, because Marco is on the street and his bag is missing. And Hans mm-hmm. is like, but he had the detonators. So we figure out that John McLean's got some weapons in his bag. So, yep. He's got some bargaining chips. Yep. And then uh, we've got Powell, Al Powell, and his first contact with John McLean. Obviously, they don't know each other's names at this point, but uh, Paul's like to radio the person who called the police. Uh, and we get the b- beginning of a very burgeoning relationship over the radio. Yep. Um, a very, you know, it's a very unique scenario. You know, I mean, these two, I mean, obviously they have talked to the radios and everything, but, um, and it gets to the point, like sometimes I even have my notes here. You forget that everyone's listening to them talk to each other. You know, so it's not like yeah. you're talking on a private channel. So, I mean, all this stuff they're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, um, you know, some of the heartfelt stuff that we'll get into. Um, yeah, just a very interesting dynamic. I don't know. Let's say it's just me being a dork. But, uh, yeah, and then McLean kind of gets That's called. why he can't also, at the same point, he can't tell Al at this point that he's a cop or anything. Right. He and just has to there. talk in vague terms because he knows that Hans is still listening at this point. So that yeah. makes all the difference. I think the important thing, though, is the relationship between these two people is Al now totally understands what John's going through because he's just been shot at. Uh, yeah. But he's in safety now. But he realizes that John's in that building with all those other people and there's a hostage. So he totally understands, like, some of the other people who are going to come into the scene in a minute. The guy who <laughs> deals with Al, his boss, like, he's a total douchebag. Like, he has no empathy at all. But Al, having been shot at, totally understands the severity of this and knows that the position that John's in is not a good position to be in right now. Yeah, so it's uh, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. And I've got some questions for you once you get to that, too. So, um, but yeah, and then McLean kind of gives him the rundown. I'll let you know what they're dealing with. 
Um, he's got a rough estimate. Now they're down, what, three at this point? So he's killed three. Sounds about right. Than mm-hmm. These two guys. Um, and wondering, um, and, and he's just wondering like, how he knows that their terrorist he's like, goes on uh, from their brand name clothes, their cigarettes. And he's like, and he lets them know, is he seen enough fake IDs at the ones that they got? cost of fortune. Um, mm-hmm. Thinks, obviously, you said Paul thinks he's a cop, but he can't say it because it's on a party line. Um, I'll let some know to lay low, and the LAPD is on it. Um, and then the aforementioned douchebag. <laughs> and they even give him a douchey name, too. I love it. Deputy Dwayne T. Robinson. Um, <laughs> loves it. Um, now he comes in, he's accosting Paul, questioning his logic. Um, you know, he's like fake IDs. He could be a fucking bartender for all we know. <laughs> um, you know, and to be honest with you, he's, he's got a point. Um, he is asking logical questions, but he's being an obnoxious asshole while doing it. Like if he said, Hey, how do you know? Maybe, I mean, he could be la da da He's asking, he's asking questions that, that, that make sense, but he's just a prick about it. I don't think though at that same time, because obviously Al's had the conversation and he didn't, but if he'd have found out a bit more, like he was talking about, he knew specific things about them that made them him think that they were terrorists. And yeah. he used to give them number counts as well. That's not something I don't think a bar, a bar, a barman Bartender, would yeah. On a line like that, or to not give details. If you're a barman, you would have probably said on the line, "Hey, I'm just like a barman." I, I don't think you would be you'd be coy about it, realizing, "Oh, he's listening right now." Like, how did he manage to procure this walkie-talkie in the first place? Like, <laughs> your barman's not doing that. He yeah. managed to smash a window open and throw a body through the window. <laughs> like, once again, this With is very not- good accuracy, by the way. If you're taking all the evidence that's going on right now, I think it all points to police right now. But hey, he—he's yeah. not interested. He's just—he just—I think he ha- just wants to be in that power trip mode. He wants oh, yeah. to go through. He considers this. Hey, look, I've done my training in these terrorist situations. You do this, 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 and this. This guy here could mess things up for me. This could be my major moment right now, and I don't want—I don't care what he thinks. I got to do my stuff. So yeah, he's on his own little power trip. But yeah, he's a total douche. Yeah, and the and the question is, do you ever think? I mean, do you think he was ever a street cop? Like he does not. He just he's the guy. No, that's got the degree, but not the experience. I mean, you're, I'm sure yeah. you ran into those kind of people. Um, yep. You know, so mm-hmm. it's my job to get the job. Oh, so I'm just gonna yeah leave that at that. So <laughs> yeah, I just realized my manager at the Brewers uh, was born after I graduated high school, so that's always funny. So, but he mm-hmm. takes very good care of us because I know we're recording, and I'm not just saying that. So. Um, mm-hmm. but before we run off another tangent, oh yeah, TV crew shows up. Uh, there's obnoxious, almost running people over, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah, and that antenna, I guess that's one thing that really bothered the bothered the director was that antenna was all wiggly, but I thought it made perfect sense. It just shows her driving like complete pricks. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we get the bad guy setting up a TV. Um, and I love this line, but Holly comes in. And uh, Hans is kind of like paying her no mind, la da da, writing down all his checks and everything. And he's like, "Who made you boss?" And um, she's like, "You did when you killed my boss." He's like, "Oh shit!" Yep. I was like, "Yeah, get him, Holly." Um, like I said once again, the strong woman thing that we talked about earlier. Um, yeah. And she she got a couple demands, you know. She's doing muscle and all. They've got a pregnant woman. She's like, "Don't worry." You know, she's a couple of weeks out and just uh, some bathroom breaks and, and Tom's kind of concede. So, um, you know, at the, pl- at the end of it, he's like, and your name is Holly. 
Holly Gennaro, you know, mm-hmm. playing it for cool for sure. Cause she's got an inkling that John's still alive, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, she yeah. obviously doesn't know for sure. So I like the fact that um, the first Amanda wasn't met though. Like, he's like, um, can we put her in a, a room? There's a couch over there. Can we put her in that room? And he's like, no, but we can bring the couch to you. Is that acceptable? And she's yeah. like, yeah, that, that's fine. And then she mentions the bathrooms, and you can tell, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that at all. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Um, then we go back to Dickhead Reporter. Um, he's on the scene, and then Argyle's watching TV. And then uh, Argyle realizes that there's a terrorist threat about 30 feet above his head or 30 floors. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of drives around and he kind of realizes that, uh, whoops, he's locked in. So, um, yeah, then we cut to the SWAT team and they got SWAT team there quick. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then uh, obviously then uh, Dwayne and L they do some um, arguing and L reminds me, you know, there's 30 hostages up there and Dwayne says, we don't know shit, um, you know, which is possible. But I mean, but and at the same time, L's like, we're, we're risking people's lives. We don't know. Um, yeah. You know, and then John's look, he's like, you want, you know, what's going on, L? What's going on? And he tells him he can't talk right now. And John insists and he says, if you, I like this line, he says, if you are who we think you are, you'll know when to shut up and when to pray, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the SWAT team's getting ready to start in the building. Um, well, you said the SWAT team, sorry, you said the SWAT team got there quickly. Um, they got in the same time that the news reporters got there and he had to bargain for a truck as well. So to be honest, they should be there a lot quicker than a, a news crew would be. You would hope. But. Yeah, but I mean, they're mobilizing weapons and people yeah. and everything. So, uh-huh. yeah. Which we showed they weren't very efficient in the end, but um, um, yeah. And the SWAT team—they're getting ready to start in the uh, the building. Hans getting them um, is announcing they've got some company. Um, and Theo is the eyes for everybody. Um, now this scene, so we got those guys running, and then one guy cuts his hand by by the rose and kind of does the whole owl thing. Um, I wonder if that was on purpose or not. I just I can never tell because I mean, this kind of shows that I mean a normal tough guy wouldn't be worried about a thorn cut, you know, but these guys are supposed to be rough and tough. So um, that's one thing I've always wondered as a kid, if that was done on Hmm. purpose or not, but I'm probably reading too much into it. Um, And then uh, the guy stealing the guy that's ready down there, he steals the candy bar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was hilarious. So, that's um, definitely a good moment. Like I say, of all the minutiae, like 640 million in bonds and you're worried about a 50 cent candy bar. Yep. Yeah, you can't, and it's fine. I kind of like you, how he looks around and everything. You know, once again, it puts a little levity into it. You know, they're not all just business. So um, and Hans just radios down just to wound everybody. So, you know, obviously he's aware there's a plan going on. Um, and then they start lighting everybody up, which I mean – what did they think was going to happen? I mean, these guys are sitting ducks. Yeah. Um, then, once again, Al Paulo, my hero, um, they start shooting. And, um, the you know, the head SWAT guy or whatever is like, oh, it's just panic flare. They can't see anything. And Al's like, they're shooting at the lights. And mm-hmm. all the lights start going off. And Dwayne's like, oh, uh, they're shooting at the lights. <laughs> I love that. So, um yeah. Yeah, and then they send in the car. Um, God, yeah, this guy, he's just, he's that guy. I mean, this is the director guy, not Dwayne, but the other guy. He's just that guy. 
you know, all this. And you can tell when he says he's sitting in the car, he's probably got an erection saying that. He's like, just him in the car. Give him the car. Um, it was just kind of awkward. But uh, the car shows up. And uh, I guess this was um, a big sticking point. So they're, this is when we came out from Fox. They're filming at Fox Towers, but there's a bunch of things they weren't supposed to do. And um, they really hated because this is like fancy Spanish marble that they're running over on the steps. Um, the thing they were really worried about was because they ran over the railings. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's going to happen. So once again, easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> um, but yeah, but they're all ready for them and they send a missile down. Uh, first shot blows, I know, knocks them up, but they're still operational. Uh, they're stretching for the second one. Um, McLean's like, let him pull back, Hans. You made your fucking point. Blah 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 blah. blah. And I love, um, I love the lines like, "I'll take it under under advisement." Hit him again. Um, and they do a second one. And then um, earlier on, when they were moving, um, I did not realize this, which is funny till this time. So that third rocket, they actually dropped. So those guys actually would have probably been t- really toast if they had shot in that third rocket. Cause they were getting ready to shoot a third one, but they had dropped it earlier when they're doing all their German yelling. It's why it's why drive you. So, um, and then, uh, McLean's pissed. Um, yeah. yeah so he, uh, he, he takes the C4 that he found in the bag. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I forgot to mention in the bag were radios, a bunch of detonators and a bunch of C4. Mm-hmm. Um, so he puts a third, or he, he puts like an extra um, stick in there sort of for extra explosive, I'm guessing. Um, throws one of the rented computers on there, and he throws a big stick of C4 down the elevator shaft. Geronimo, motherfucker. Um, John McClane really likes the motherfucker word in this movie. Um, yeah, and it obviously prevents uh, the third shot, but man, what a shot of that fire coming up the elevator, though. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm not sure how they did that, but it was pretty awesome. And then, um, yeah, everyone thinks, uh, or all the terrorists think they're shooting heavy artillery, and then Han's like, um, it's him. And then uh, they blow up the building. Sorry, I forgot to say he throws down the elevator shaft. Big, big explosion. And then uh, Dickhead Reporter's like, did you get that? Please tell me you got that. It's your heart mm-hmm. out, Channel 5. Yeah, because Thornburg is only worried about one thing, and that's Thornburg. So, which we'll see later on in the movie. God, I want to punch yeah. his in the face. So, um, <laughs> I love this seat too. Um, McLean calls on the radio. Uh, he's talking to Paul. Uh, when Dwayne T. Robinson gets on the radio, starts yelling, you know, a lot of that. I was like, You just blew up a building. I've got a hundred people covered in glass. And McLean's like, Glass. Who the fuck gives a who gives a fuck about glass? And he starts yelling at him. He's like, um, "Who is this?" He's like, "I'm Dwayne Two Robinson. I'm the one that's in charge right here." He's like, "Where I'm coming from, do your lows look like you're in charge or you're in charge of jack shit?" He's like, "You listen to me, you little asshole." And he's like, "Asshole, I'm not the one that just got butt fucked on national TV." Um, loved it. Um, awesome. It was just, I mean. You know, and how they shot that too. Yeah, I, I just love this scene. I'm probably going to put that. I might put that as a little clip in, in the, on the episode. We'll see. Okay, um, it was a good one. Yeah, <clears throat> and, um, yeah. He gets it back to any. Um, McLean starts swearing at him. He's like, "Put the other guy back on. Um, you're part of the problem. Start being part of the problem." And uh, Dwayne walks away with his legs between his his, uh, his tail between his legs. 
Um, yeah. And then uh, obviously Paul gets on the radio, tries to support McLean's so, like not everyone feels that way. And claims, you know, feeling a little underappreciated. So yeah, great scene. Um, a lot of fun. I just love how he put, um, obviously we can tell that McLean does not really care about quote unquote authority. So mm-hmm. You could see why it would be underappreciated as well, like all the crap he's gone through. Yeah. Like at this point, you must realize that the fake fire alarm was a real fire alarm, and that was him. Yeah. You must also realize that the person on the roof calling for the same lives a terrorist attack was him. So the reason that they're there is because he alerted them to it, which obviously Hans wanted, kind of. He in it wouldn't have happened in that direct um, way, but that basically helped the plan go along. Yeah, uh, just not in the way he intended it to. So. Yeah, he definitely feels I would he could definitely feel underappreciated at this point for sure. Yeah, and this is where I mean at this point, I mean, yeah, Dwayne can go fuck himself for the rest of this movie. So um and then we cut to Ellis. Um just start there in the middle of the room, starting some coke. And Holly's yeah. like, What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> um you know, he's like and Holly's like, he tells Holly, he's like I do, or um, I make million dollar bit, or I make million dollar deals for breakfast, baby. I can handle this year old trash. And then he, he looks up, sprechen Sie talk. Yeah. I mean, his German is like mine. So, <laughs> um, you know, Ellis walks in and uh, and Hans wants to know what uh, what he wants. He's like, it's not what I want, it's what I can give you, which is a pretty good line. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then uh, Ellis kind of goes into his little sales pitch, uh, throws a bunch of racial slurs around and fancy dick names. Um, not, and you can definitely see how Carl just wants to put a bullet in this guy's head. Yeah, um, Hans waves him off. He's like, yeah. nope. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, Let's oh, see what we got. Somebody up there fucking, it, you know, fucking it up or anything. And then we cut the uh, real quick. McLean's eating Twinkies. Of course, Paula knows all the ingredients of the Twinkies. Um, yeah, so I don't think those were really for his wife. Um, yeah, and then all of a sudden, um, yeah, Hans calls him by his first name. He's like John McLean of the New York Police Department, and McLean's like, "Shit," because mm-hmm. they think he thinks that they found out about Holly. Um, but it's Ellis, you know. Ellis is acting like they're friends, um, and McLean does all he can to tell Ellis to shut up. They're gonna kill him unless they shut up. We're not friends. La da 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 da. Um, and the one, one redeeming quality of Ellis, he did not blow his cover saying spill the beans about Holly. Correct. Yeah. Uh, that is the one redeeming quality. Everything else he does is an asshole. Um, you know, one of the other ad libbing scenes was actually in this one here when, uh, Hans, uh, when he, when he referred to Hans Bobby, that was not uh, an original word in the uh, script, and it okay. showed you Alan Rickman's because Alan Rickman was kind of puzzled because that wasn't supposed to be in the script. So that that was one of the other ad lib in the in the in the film. Nice, yeah, and I guess the guy played Ellis too. I mean, he um, they were trying to play Ellis a little bit straighter, I guess, and he kind of said, "No, that doesn't make any sense." I mean, just kind of you know, I'm cooked out of my gore talking to these guys, thinking I'm hot shit. So. Bobby, mm-hmm. that's hilarious. I love his reactions, like when the uh, the terrorist is bringing him like his uh, coke and he's pouring it into a glass for him, and he's like putting his hand over the receiver and he's like acting all cool. He, like he's weighing over his head. He's talking about sixty minutes, I think, at this point as well. He's like, he's and and Hans is totally sucking up to him as well. He's like, oh, you figured this out already? He's like, oh, oh okay. Oh yeah, yeah. what he says like, oh, I watched sixty minutes. I know what you guys are about. 
Mm-hmm. And then later on, Hans is like, I must have missed that 16 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Alan Rickman, why'd you have to pass away so young? Um, I could watch that guy on screen for, for hours. So um, I'm glad he's in Harry Potter because we get 16 hours of Alan Rickman. So, <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, um, you know, McLean's worried, uh, but he figured out that it's Ellis and obviously he didn't spill the beans. Um you know, Hans pulls out a gun. He's like, he's like Hans, or is this where he says Bobby? No, this is Han- no, but it weren't. Oh, perhaps that's where it is. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't sure, but he's like, yeah, this is uh, this is radio, not TV. Put the gun away. And McLean's just like, no, la da da da, la da da da. And then, um, yeah, then he gets shot. You know, and Hans realized that you know Ellis is not really the friend that he claimed to be. Um, and he takes the radio off because everyone's screaming because there's a shot going on. And he's like, um, shall I kill another one? And then, you know, I'm eventually going to get to someone you do care about. So obviously Hans knew what was yeah. up. So and then Dwayne, he had to be in the building for some reason. So he had to be connected to somebody in the party. So it was at that point, it was a logical, because before he could just have been somebody who was working in the building. Yeah. If there was construction work going on on all the other floors, they knew about that. That could just have been somebody up there at that point. So yeah. Yeah. His cover was finally blown and this this is where this is where Dwayne totally. I mean, he's like he just let him die, man. I'm like, what was McLean supposed to do? Yeah, nothing. No, he's he's like, not doing anything. It's like he just pulled the trigger himself. I'm like, where? where that doesn't even, that. No, you know, he told people, him. He said, "Tell tell him I'm not your friend. Tell him you've never met me until tonight." It's like, did you not listen to the conversation there, Dwayne? So, um, yeah, him and Dwayne, and a lot of people say, yeah, this is where. You know, the idiot cop thing got a little too much. Um, I'm not even a stupid idiot cop would say something like that, but, you know, who knows? Um, but, yeah, him and Paul get into it. You know, Paul starts sticking up for McClane. He's like, what are you talking about? He did all, all he could. And he's like, no, man, he just let him lie. And then, and then um, he's like, yeah, why don't you wake up and smell what you're shoveling? And then uh, he dismisses Paul. He's like, Paul, and Paul stands his ground. He's like, you couldn't drag me away. So I'm like, yeah, ew. You tell him so. And then uh, Hans gets on the radio with his uh, list of demands, um, which was hilarious. And then with the oh, with the Asian uh, the Asian Dawn, and then Carl's like Asian Dawn, and then Hans like yeah, I read about him in Time Magazine. <laughs> so, and then uh, you've got two hours, and then he'll put all the hostages on the roof, and there'll be helicopter to LAA where they'll go to a destination he picks later. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they have a little interaction. He's like, "Will you even try?" And uh, Hans is like, "Who cares?" You know. So yeah, that's just once again, it's that misdirection which we didn't realize at this point in the film. Yep. So um, at this point, Carl Hans split up. Uh, they want to kill, or um, and obviously they want to kill McLean, but they're trying to find the detonator. You know, and um, yeah, and uh, I wonder at this point, like, if everyone else realizes the plan too. Um, like who all yeah. knows? Don't know. They're wiring up the roof, so they have to know something because because they realize, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they know that side of it. Well, actually, they must know the plan because they, if they were in the back of the truck and the ambulance was in the back of the truck, then they yeah. obviously know, they they obviously must know. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, Hans is just kind of stressing that you know it's more important than finding the detonators and killing McLean. So mm-hmm. like, let's just get that done and over with. Um, you know, and then uh, John and Paul are back on the radio, and uh, 
you know, he just smells something fishy, just something not right about those demands. So McLean's picking up that um, not everything might be uh, right in Denmark, whatever the saying is. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and then he starts, he kind of realizes that he might be in deep shit trouble, and he picks him, uh, picks on um, Paul's driving, you know, and then we get to, we find out later why he's driving. And then we get the quick uh, clip of um, the hostage expert on the news. And uh, I forgot the name of the book, but it's it's one of those guys. Um, it's uh, it's like hostage and terrorist, terrorist, terrorist and hostage. It's like that. one of those reversal things, but yeah, yeah. It was just like, and this guy, well done. And then, um, yeah, he's talking about uh, Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, he's like, oh yeah, Stockholm or uh, or uh, yeah, Helsinki, Finland's like nuts no, in Sweden. It's like, oh yeah. So yeah, just the, the anchor guy. I don't know who that guy was, but that guy was money too. So, all right. And then we go, um, I don't want a software update. What the hell? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I had um, that earlier as well. So not now. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. And, um, oh yeah. Then, uh, one of Dwayne's uh, lackeys comes up. Let's know that the FBI is there. <laughs> Paul's mm -hmm. like, Want a breath mint? Uh, just the one, little one-liners, the little digs like stuff like that. So, um, you know, like we talked about earlier. But why? The part I didn't like with the FBI guys is why are they both called Johnson? Why are they both called Johnson? It's like Johnson and Johnson is like no relation. Why would that? That just seemed, it just sounded like a joke. Because that's the name of a company as well. Like, yeah. why didn't they just have different names? There just didn't seem any reason to do it, except for it. It seemed like a jokey moment in a place where a joke wasn't really needed. Yeah. You could have just called them two different names and it would have been fine. It, that did seem a really strange choice why they picked the same name. Yeah, I mean, I understand they're trying to do a little levity, but yeah, you're right. It wasn't the right spot for it. I yeah, mean, it was funny. You know, I mean, the Johnson-Johnson no relation thing was, I mean, it was funny, but yeah, why? But yeah, Um mm. And this is the point where they tell that Dwayne is no longer in charge, which he mm -hmm. wasn't in charge in the first place. Um, then we cut to Hans. Hans is looking for the detonators, and uh, McLean runs into him all of a sudden. Um, they have a very interesting interaction. Obviously, Hans is not acting like he's Hans because he's um, McLean's got a machine gun in front of him. Um, he dropped his oh, he was looking for the detonators, and like he dropped yeah. his gun off to crawl up somewhere. Um, yeah. so, so forth, but uh, yeah, I guess this um, this they wanted to make um, Hans and Clean actually run into each other before the final scene, yeah. Uh, and I guess that Alan Rickman had done a couple like an American impression, so I thought I thought Rickman's accent here was really good. Some people kind of bagged on it, but yeah, so this was one of the things like if they hadn't have picked Alan Rickman, this scene would not have featured. This definitely. was not. This was added once they realized he could do that accent. So they definitely made the film. One of those lucky choices again. You don't know that at the time, but right. they used it to their own advantage, and it was good for them to meet each other. But not knowing, well, one of them not realizing the the real <sighs> dynamic that's going on there. Yeah, and then um, really the genius listed. You know, he sees the William. You know, the William Clay on the board, but he says Bill Clay. Instead, so I don't know why there's a random board up there with the names of people on the roof, but um, just to me, it showed him thinking, you know, um, you know, that uh, Hans is thinking on his feet, and obviously, Hans knows he doesn't have any shoes on, 
McLean's like better than getting caught with their pants down. So um, I thought it was kind of funny, a little generic, but um, now the million dollar question here, Graham is when did McLean McLean figure out that it was Hans or somebody not claiming to be Bill Clay? I don't know. See, I I actually misremembered this actually. I thought that he'd, I thought there was a follow-up line to this. So obviously he got that one right. And then I thought he looked for another name on a different floor and then said, oh, you must work with, and then give the name of somebody on a different floor. And then if Hans agrees with that, then you know that that's, I obviously, I don't know where I got that from. That must be from like a different film or something where somebody played a little tricker on them or something, or it could have been a TV show or something. But when I was watching it, I was waiting for that to come. And I was like, oh, I totally misremembered that part of it. But I thought he was going to mess with him like that. and like, hey, do you know such and such from that floor? But that was not part of this at all. So, and I just, I just watching the scene. I can't figure out, I mean, did McLean know the whole time or did McLean just, or was he just assuming, or was he just covering his ass by giving him an unloaded gun? And how did Hans not load notice there wasn't a clip in the gun? Um, that that's yeah. Well, he wasn't, I don't know how much of a gun expert he was. Like, we know he killed the boss earlier, but he seems more... Well, I guess he was a terrorist. He would have had a... Yeah, he would have had gun knowledge. So... Um, I think from John's point of view, don't you have to not trust anybody at this point? Yeah. And you know that there's people in there who are baddies. So, in all likelihood, is it really that somebody escaped from that? So, I, I, I think it made sense that you... If he's wrong on that one, he's in big trouble. But if he then gets the gun pointed at him, then he knows definitely for sure that he was right. So I think he just got to play it like that. But yeah. having given him the, having tested him on the name and him passing that name, then yeah, it would have made more sense if he'd have picked the wrong. Because I was listening on that, I was like, did he say the right name or like the right floor or something? Was that the thing that gave him away? But no, he answered exactly what was on the board, as far as I could tell. Yeah. So. I don't know. Yeah, and then obviously the question is why just didn't you know McLean just shoot him right on the spot? But once again, we wouldn't have the rest of the movie. But uh, then all of a sudden, that random ding like they, there's a lot of scenes where like the dings are very important. The ding, you know, he says, "What do I look like? I'm stupid." Takes the gun and the ding goes, and then Hans is like, "You were saying," and then there's more gunfight. Um, yeah, and then we cut real quick to the FBI, um, bunch of more assholes. Um, and they're like, yeah, if we run in, yeah, if we come in near your men, we'll, uh, we'll let you know. It's like, or we'll try to let you know. It's like, you're all on the same team here, asshole. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, uh, the one she's like, oh, this is an A7 kidnapping scenario. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. And then, um, you're we like, oh, and then, uh, Paul spills the beans about McLean because Dwayne wasn't going to say anything. Yeah. There's a guy in there that knows all this stuff. And then, um, and Dwayne toys like, and then they're like, is he one of yours? And Dwayne's like, no, no way. I'm like, dude, fuck you, Dwayne. God, um, man. So, um, and then McLean gets away. I mean, there's a big gunfight they go back to the scene. They get and um, McLean's pretty well fortified. And then Hans tells everyone to shoot the glass, the classic line. Like, I don't know why he had to say it in English. Um, he said it in German first, but then he said it in English. Um, but it resonated. Um, so I don't know if that was him or us, but I guess all those computers that were in there were rented computers. <laughs> and they had to tell, you know, so I'm sure they probably didn't get their deposit back. I don't know why they just wouldn't use like old broken computers. I mean, it was going to tell the difference. Um, 
I guess they spend fifty thousand dollars in tempered glass for this scene. Just this scene. Mm. Wow. Um, and then uh, you remember the scene where the guy he's running and he gets his knees blown out and the, the guy like falls into the um, the window. Yeah, that was a, yeah, that was a real stunt. So that guy really did that, and I guess the stunt man obviously wasn't the actual actor, but uh, yeah, I got eleven stitches in his head. Ooh, I don't know how you fake. I mean, that seems like a dangerous to bring it back to wrestling. Seems like a dangerous bump to take. Yeah, you know, to put your head through the glass like that. So, um, but yeah, but they've got McLean. Uh, they've got him cornered. Um, you know, all the glass shit, and then uh, Hans finds a bag, and he's got the detonators, and they are back in business, as the kids like to say. Um, and then we click uh, back to the asshole reporter and we've got his little assistant. Uh, she comes back and she's got all McLean's vitals, including his badge number, his department, blah, blah, blah. And his home address right here in LA. Mm-hmm. This still upsets me. I know it's a movie. It shouldn't upset me, but we'll get to that later. So I sure, you know, what I'm getting at. So, well, where it developed from that was like absolutely appalling, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and they come back down the 30th floor and they're kind of hanging out with the hostages and everything. And then uh, once again, Bonnie Bedelia krill, killing it. Carl, he's really pissed. You know, I guess he, imp- I guess Carl improvised with that smashing of the gun like he smashed the table. Um, that was another improvis- improvising. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, well, what would I do if I was that pissed? All right. Hold on. There's- oh. There's one more thing before that then. So they threw like a smoke grenade in and they're hoping oh, yeah, he's going to right. all his feet on that. And then right. he saw the exit and obviously with this, once the smoke goes up, you don't see it, but ah. you know he's actually gone through that exit. So at that point, they don't know where he is and I assume that's why they went back downstairs. But yeah. Gotcha. Okay. You're right. I'm sorry. I forgot about that. So huh? thanks, Graham. Um, but I do like uh, Holly's line as well. She's like, she's like, John's still alive. He's like, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that guy looks pissed. It's like that. So they know they made that connection there straight away. But you know, the fact that Holly finds that funny is, yeah. is kind of really cool. I like that. Yeah. Only John can drive someone that crazy. Oh, it looks <laughs> so good. So good. Um, and then we cut to the, the toughest scene of the movie for me John sliding into the bathroom with a severely bloody feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just something about cuts to the feet. Are just oh like like feet things, oh still gets to me. Like you see a horror movie, like whenever time you see someone's ankle slashed, oh uh-huh. yeah. I mean I'm okay with someone getting their throat cut, head blown off. That's okay, but um yeah. Wow. So long story short, um, McLean had to go through a bunch of glass, and he remember everybody, he doesn't have shoes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess in this scene, obviously they had molded plastic feet. Um, so it didn't look like he had shoes on. So, but yeah, that was really McLean running through there. But um, as he I'm, dragged his foot though in, you could see the blood trailing and on the floor. Uh, there, so it looks, yeah, it looked good. Yeah, looked great. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then um, Theo calls to Hans and just lets him know he just broke the seventh seal. Um, and then he's like, "Well, take a look outside, and I'll be right down." So. So good. Oh, man, I love this movie, Graham. I'm so glad we're doing this. So, <laughs> um, Then we cut back to McLean, and he's in the bathroom and just pulls a humongous chunk of glass out of his foot. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, 
He's got the funny line. I don't really know what this means. You know, Paul's like, how are you doing? He's like, all things be equal. I'd rather be in Philadelphia. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. But um, kind of random. But, uh, you know, and then I guess um, Bruce Willis had done a bunch of uh, talking to police and stuff like that. And just like, um, you know, sometimes people get a very cynical sense of humor when they know they're going to die. Yeah. You know, or they're in big trouble. Um, and, you know, and Paul's kind of saying, he lets him know, Hey, he's like, you know, there's a pool down there. And then McLean's like, uh, you know, there's a pool going on out here. He's like, what kind of odds you get? And, and Paul's like, well, they're not good. He's like, yeah, put me down for 20. No good for it. So, um, you know, you can really kind of see the cracks. He's just kind of making those, those funny, like, I know I'm fucked jokes, but, um, you know, and, and then, uh, he asked, he asked Paul, he's like, well, Paul, you got flat feet or something? Why are you trying to avoid, uh, you know, working on the street? And, you know, Paul is trying to avoid the question. He's like, what, shuffling papers is a noble position for a cop? Um, and things get heavy. You know, I mean, Clay kind of bugs him. And then Paul lets him know that he had an accident. And mm-hmm. uh, Clay's like, yeah, would you run over your, ball, your commander's foot? He's like, I shot a kid. Like, really, really well done. Like, the way he said that, like... I don't know how to explain it, but it was really well done. Cause like, it was like, he said it very yeah. nonchalantly, but like facially he's like, dude, this is killing me. Um, you know, and obviously this is, you know, unfortunately coming more and more relevant um, in the, in the future than it was in 1988. But he just talks about, you know, the kid had a plastic gun. It was raining out, you know, um, the whole kit and caboodle. And we ever find out if the kid died. I know it doesn't matter. Um, but I mean, this is one of those little things. So, I mean, just bad enough he shot a kid. But, you know. I would always assumed he did, but. Yeah, I, I, did, I did too. So, but someone, someone else mentioned that. I'm like, huh, I mean, does it really matter? Um, yeah. And then, you know, it gets pretty heavy. And then McLean's like, great, I'm an asshole. Thanks. You know, so he's starting to beat himself up. And then, um, yeah, he's just, he's like, great. I've got one friend left in the world. I just hurt the one friend I've got. Awesome. You know, and then just uh, mm-hmm. I was just like, yeah. After that, I couldn't couldn't draw my gun my gun on again anyone again. So, foreshadowing maybe, Graham. Hmm. Mm, it be. <laughs> it be. Um. And then Paul just throws in a quick line. Uh, the FBI is in charge now. Uh. Then we cut back and we've got Hans and Theo in the back room. And Theo is kind of going over. He's like, okay, so these people over here. Uh, these are the police. These are the city engineers. Uh, and these guys in the seats. I'm not sure who they are. And Hans tells him that's the FBI. And then um, and then Hans starts quoting the um, FBI terrorist handbook, word for word. Um, all the circuits that can't, can't be cut locally will be cut um, in response to a terrorist um, threat. He's like, Theo, you asked for a miracle, and I give you the FBI. Rickman really nailed that line. He could have said, hey, here's the FBI, but no, I just, man. So good. Um, yeah, and then we cut to the older Johnson. Um, he's yelling at the, the city workers. Um, you know, it's like, he's like, oh, I need authorization. He's like, how about the United States fucking government? Blah, 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 blah. And uh, that's Robert Davies. Um, Robert Davies is also famous for the movie Goonies. I'm assuming, have you seen Goonies? I'm I, I haven't seen it since it came out. A long oh, time saw- ago. Oh, you saw it when it came out? A long time ago. Oh. Um, I don't think I particularly liked it. Okay, I was going to say. That's it's a long, long time ago, though. So, yeah, it's, we're talking 35-plus years. 
Yeah, I saw that one in the movie theater. Um, mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, the guy that played him, Robert Davey, he's actually pretty good friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so I guess he's watching the scene with Arnold. And Arnold's like, man, look at you. He's like doing the, oh, man, you're in charge, man. You're the badass, la da 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 And Davey's just like, uh, wait, la da da So, um, yeah, I thought that was kind of a funny little anecdote. But um, um, And this is really cut the power. Um, so this is all effects driven. So this is obviously the one part they had a tough time because literally, like they said in the movie, if they're going to cut the part of the building for sure, they'd have to cut it for the whole neighborhood. And I obviously couldn't do that. On Christmas Eve as well. Yeah. Well, I meant like in real life, just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but obviously, yeah. But, and then, but yeah, they cut the power. Um, and listen, yeah, there's a, yeah, it's all special effects and stuff like that. So I won't get into all that, but, um, I love this here though. Like I said, we talked about the music earlier and I really love how old it, I mean, they use the music right here because um, they cut the power, the safe opens up and just old joy is just playing like full blast, you know, and just the terrorists are so happy because everything worked out. La da da. Oops. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, All right. I got a question for you here. Yes. So, once the once obviously the power's cut, the room that John's in obviously goes dark, and then the emergency lighting comes on. Why isn't there an emergency thing for the safe? Of all the things that's important in that building, wouldn't you think that if you had nearly a billion dollars stored in there, six hundred and forty whatever, that you would have some backup for that as well? But oh no, we get the lights on. We'll, we'll, don't worry about the lights. We got those. If any power cuts or anything, we got lights, no problem. But our maximum security safe, that's all that got all those protocols and everything, that, that'll just go straight off. To me, that seemed a little implausible. Yeah, I was just like, and why did it open? Yeah. Why would you well, design a safe that you can be open just by switching off a power switch? Yeah. It didn't seem very it didn't seem very effective. I know they had to get through the other steps first, but even so, to me, I, I never really thought about it before. But as I was watching this with a slightly more critical eye, I was like, "Really? Yeah, it's like it a little too easy." Um, why did it open? But made for a great movie, I guess it did. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and just I mean, there's a funny scene. They're all playing. They're basically playing the ball, you know, flicking booby statues and stuff like that. And just the music's just kick, you know, killing it. Um, very inspired by. Uh, Clockwork Orange, I didn't mention that earlier. Another great movie. Yeah. Um, have you seen that one? Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Yep. yep. So, have you read the book, by the way? The book's No, I'm not a big reader. Okay. Yeah, it's I did read the book for Field of Dreams, which I mentioned earlier, and it was absolutely awful. I hated it. Oh, really? It was so different from the, uh, from the film. Um, oh. They changed a lot. I know one of the characters in it was his brother. And uh, there was just so many things. I was like, oh, they did such a much better job on the film. Yeah, no, I'd, I tend not to. There's very few films where I've read the book and then uh, watched yeah. the film afterwards. Contact was one of them. And actually, I did The Hunger Games as well. I, that, that was before they were even announced as they were going to be films. So, Oh, yeah, I haven't seen Hunger Games yet either. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I love this scene. Um, yeah, the terrorists are just having a field day. And then Johnson and Johnson are walking around. Oh, yeah, they're probably pissing their pants now. Boy, we got one over on them. <laughs> Look at us. Um, and then Johnson radios to get the helicopters ready. So it's like, what a bunch of fucking tool bags. I mean, you don't want to, you know, what happens happens to happen to anybody. But you weren't sad when it happened. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, this was one of the weird parts for me, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit. So we talked about earlier that it was the you assumed to begin with they were terrorists, but then that was kind of seen like we're on that political angle. So really, we're going to find out that really they're just bank robbers. That's uh, petty thieves, essentially, but on a much larger scale. But then we find out that the whole point of the uh, everything was they were wiring the roof up. They're sending the guests up onto the roof, and then they're just going to explode it all. I'm like, that's pretty much terrorists, isn't it? Like yeah. they said they were trying to get away from that side of it, and you're just going to blow up every single person. Like at that point, you don't have to do that. You could let them rescue those people. Well, no, they have to blow the roof because it, um, if they think it blew up, they think that the terrorists are dead too. So that's how they get away. Oh, Hans said that. Yeah, you don't look yeah. for them anymore, do you? If you did that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that, was the, that was the escape plan. So that's right. I'd missed that part of it. Yep. You're right. So you were, just, you were just seeing if I was paying attention. Ah, no, you got that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, um, the helicopters are coming. And then we show them. I kind of missed the, the types on here. It's just kind of flashed back and forth. But um, yeah, I guess the helicopter scenes were the toughest ones to shoot, obviously, because um, you're flying helicopters down a major, you know, city street in Los Angeles. Um, and it sounds like Materian, they shot, or they only shot like 20 or like 30% of what he wanted to shoot because he just didn't feel good about the helicopter stuff because they were on that roof. I mean, they were really shooting. That wasn't like, yeah, obviously they didn't explode a helicopter. I thought that. I thought there was a, f- a few too many of those. They kept going backwards and forwards. I'm like, we get it. You go in, you head in there. I don't need to see as many of these. I'm like, let's let's cut to the chase a little bit. I thought they could have edited that down a little bit. Yeah. Um. Um. I just screwed up my notes, so I'm just gonna kind of improvise here. But uh, we've so we've got um. The Johnson Johnson, the FBI guys are just talking, you know, la, da, da, da. It's like, what do you expect for breakage for the hostages? They're like, well, if we lose 20, 25%, it's like, I can live with that. It's like, <laughs> really? Uh-huh. Yep. Collateral damage. They didn't really care. They just want to get it done. And yeah, they yeah. kind of, it's to them, it's like, that's a standard. You always lose around that number. So if we lose that, that's fine. We've still got. 75% safe. Yeah, they're very pragmatic about it. They're not very not yeah. very empathetic again, for sure. They yeah. do talk trash to each other a little bit as well because they're, they're obviously slightly differences in age as well. Because one of them, I can't remember what he mentioned specifically. So I got the other one goes, yeah, I was in junior high at that point. Yeah, I was in junior, yeah. It's like, I think it was Vietnam. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, you remind, he's like, man, it feels like we're in Saigon. He's like, I was in junior high, dickhead. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then uh, oh yeah, they're talking about um, you know, they're once they get uh, the, the hostages up, they're gonna start shooting them, la da da. And then Hans is like, yeah, once they figure out what's going on, we'll be on the beach earning twenty percent. So um, yeah, the FBI thinks they got them, but they really don't. So, um, yep. and then we get McLean, um, and oh yeah, McLean's like at this point, he's like, I'm done, um, I'm I'm over this, I'm dead. He's like, Paul, I need a favor. Um, I need you to find Holly. Um, <clears throat> I can't tell you how right now, but by then you'll know how. Um, just tell her, you know, and then he, he gets, doesn't say Holly by name, of course. He just said, oh, I need shit, you to you're find right. my wife. My wife. You're yeah. right. I'm sorry. Um, very important fact there. Um, yeah. And then he's just like, and he goes through his little speech. He's like, and that it, basically the heart of it is like, you've heard me say I love you a thousand times, but you've never heard me say I'm sorry. Um, yeah, once again, McLean mm-hmm. nailed it. Um, 
I didn't remember that line. All the times I've seen it, I did not remember that line at all. Yeah. It definitely resonated with me this time, though. Yep. Yeah, and then of all the things that pissed me off, it's this scene. <sighs> we get to Thornburg. Yeah, Thornburg, <laughs> of course. Yep, he's at the McLean residence. Um, he threatens Paulina with the INS. And then he's like, this is the last time these kids are going to get to talk to their parents. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, so good, but it still makes me mad. So, um, yeah, then at this moment, we cut back to McLean. He's getting piffy. He's like, Hans, what were you doing on the roof? He's like, that's that seems weird. Um, and then uh, he goes up to the roof and uh, he figures out what's going on. And uh, he's calling in. He's letting Al know it's double cross, double cross. And then Carl sticks a gun in his face. Um, you know, and then uh, the, the one SWAT commander is like, what do you say? He's like, oh, something about double cross. And Al's like, oh, for real. Um, and then Carl tell, you know, grabs the radio. He says, we're both professionals. This is personal. Horrible impression, I know. But, you know, I do what I want. So um, I really love this fight. Um you know, it was very David and Goliath-like. Obviously, Carl was a very large man, but with his, ball- his, his ballet dancing um, experience, great footwork here. Um, lots of swearing, the weird, awkward cannibalism. He's going to kill him, cook him, and eat him. You know, that was odd. Um, and then uh, we got cut to uh, the 30th floor. Uh, Yuli sees the helicopters. And uh, Hans tells everyone to get um, take everyone upstairs. And, um, and he says, Miss Gennaro, it's time to gather your flock. Um, mm-hmm. And then he sees on TV, um, all of a sudden, uh, Lucy, um, Holly's daughter's on TV. And now Hans has figured out who Holly is because he looks, he looks at the TV, sees Holly's reaction, sees the picture that um, she had slammed down earlier and puts two and two together. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, by the way, speaking of that picture, so that picture, um, she obviously when she got mad at John, she put it, she folded it down earlier in her office. But McLean actually has that same picture in his wallet. So mm. so um yeah, but I love the lady in the back too. Um or Alyssa, yeah, wants her to um her daughter wants her to come home. And then um he's like, Mr. Jenner's like, Oh, Miss McLean, nice to make your acquaintance. Um, I don't know if you remember, but the lady in the back, she's like, because <gasps> like everybody knew, you know. So I just thought that was a really good reaction. So, um, yeah, this is where we talk about the breakage, the Johnson Johnsons, um, fucking dicks. Um, and let's see here. Oh yeah, then we cut to so um, so obviously Hans takes uh, Holly up with them. Uh, we get Theo, Yuli, and Honey. They're getting their things ready. Um, Hans is nervous, excited, and uh, Holly is defiant to the end. She's like, after all your bullshit speeches, after all your bullshit posturing, you're nothing but a common thief. And then and Hans is like, mm-hmm. I'm an exceptional thief. And since I'm thinking about moving up to kidnap you, you better be nice to me. Um, so good. Awesome. Like said, yep. You know, and... Um, yeah, I guess that was that was a scene that Rickman, I guess, really struggled with. And uh, they finally kind of settled on that. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Um, and then we cut back, and McLean and Carl are still fighting. Um, we won't go through the whole fight because it will be here all night. But basically, McLean um, grabs a chain, um, hangs Carl, um, and then he gets up on the roof. He's looking for Holly. 
Um, and then um, the pregnant lady tells him that she's down the roof. Um, he tells everyone to get off the roof. They're going to blow the roof. They're going to blow the roof. No one's listening to him because why would anyone listen to McLean at this point? I mean, he hasn't done anything to deserve anyone's respect. That's sarcasm, everybody. Um, they start shooting. Um, you know, he takes his gun and starts shooting everyone to scare everyone down. Everyone starts to turn down. And, of course, the Johnsons think he's a terrorist, so they try shooting him, of course. Um, which, I mean, honestly, in their defense, I mean, it makes sense. You know, I mean, they wouldn't yeah. think someone. Um, yeah, but they're uh, they're chasing him. And then all the hostages come running down. And I love this great shot. Um, you kind of see, like, over Carl's shoulder. Um, you kind of see him. So you kind of remind him that Carl's still there. Um, I don't remember that. So it's a real brief shot. But we'll get into that more later. So, um, yeah. And then uh, the helicopter chasing McLean all over on the roof. Uh, grabs a fire hose. Um, this is another big stunt that Willis did. <laughs> and he ties the fire hose around his waist um, and jumps down the side of the building. I mean, why wouldn't you? Oh, before that, he's like, I swear to God, if God, if you let me live, I'm never getting on top of a building again. <laughs> oh, poor John. Now, you got to answer me this, though. Why didn't he just go down the stairs? I, I still don't understand. Like, all the people have just gone down the stairs. Why didn't he just go down the stairs? What made him think, uh, okay, let me tie this around my waist, let me jump off the edge of the building and try... I don't understand. I, I, that, I couldn't piece that together again. Like, I remembered that scene because it's iconic, but it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for him to want to do that. He can just go down the stairs. If they really... I don't, there's multiple exits to that stairwell, I'm sure. I don't think they yeah. were the, the helicopter was stopping him from going down there. If all the people went down, then he could have gone. He could have just joined that crowd and gone down with them at the same time. Yeah, maybe. I think maybe he might have been worried that the cops were shot. I mean, as they're shooting at him, would have started shooting at the hostages. Maybe, maybe he ran a different direction. I don't think you'd be shooting at. Uh, well, that sounds ridiculous to me, but I don't know if it's possible. Well, they, like they if you were, get in the middle of that crowd, then their accuracy is not that good. But yeah, you wouldn't shoot. You wouldn't shoot into a crowd of people. I don't think. I don't know. I don't know. But it did I, seem I, weird to me that his first thought was, "Oh, I could tie a, I could tie this around my waist and jump off a building rather than I could just go downstairs." It seemed random to me, and I hadn't really picked on that, picked up on it before. Yeah, I mean, as um, the Johnsons and Johnsons talked about earlier, they weren't really too worried about killing any hostages, so they might have killed them anyway. So, um, who knows? But it, it's uh, I do love you know McLean jumps down there. Um, oh yeah, and I love the bloody footprint on the window. <laughs> um, and then McLean, I mean, he uh, he gets down there, and then uh, he's got to shoot the window out, and uh, he gets into the window. Uh, just in time as the fire hose connection or the the um, the wheel for the fire hose is on, comes yep. falling down. Um, great shot. And that yep. thing is dragging McLean almost out the window, but he gets the hose untied. Um, I guess his pocket knife, doesn't he? Me? I, don't, I, I thought it was a pocket knife and he was cutting at the strap. I don't know, because those holes are pretty thick. Okay. Um, who knows? But yeah, basically he doesn't get pulled out the window. Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah and at this point um you know hans wants to blow the roof and everyone's like but carl's up there but carl's up there he doesn't care um and hans <laughs> blows the roof it's one um, less person to split the money with at this point so yep. Yep. so the roof is blown and uh the roof blows up along with the helicopter mm -hmm. and uh i'm not sure how the helicopter doesn't fall to the ground and start like people on fire but to, i mean but who you know? What's against semantics? Um, 
this is the one redeeming line that Dwayne's got. He's like, damn, I think I need more FBI guys. Um, <laughs> so I missed uh, that. I like it. Yeah. And then we cut to the, um, the garage. So they're loading up the ambulance uh, that was supposedly in the truck earlier. Um, then our boy Argyle comes around the corner, saves the day, um, crashes limo. And then uh, he punches out Theo. Theo's knocked out and uh, they're not getting away. Um, so I'm assuming obviously Theo probably survives this whole, or I wonder if he, huh? I wonder whatever happened to him then. I guess he's in jail somewhere. I mean, because no one, I mean, if he played it smart, no one knew who he was. I mean, Argyle could have busted him, but I mean, he could have woken up and snuck through there and no one would know. I mean, all. Yeah. That could have been an interesting storyline. They could have continued. But could be. There was a couple of continuity errors with this as well after the um, the limo had crashed into the uh, the ambulance and then it showed you from the other side and it wasn't bashed in or something. I can't remember exactly oh, yeah. how it was, but it didn't meet with the... Basically, it wasn't in tow with the, the, the crash into the ambulance. Yeah. So it was obviously a different car that they'd used for, for the second scene. Yeah. Whoops. Um. But yeah, and then uh, McLean figure uh, McLean he uh, there's crashing Christmas trees. He's hanging on the water, but he's safe. Um, and then he hears Holly's voice, um, and he hears Hans's voice, and he figures out he's only got two bullets left. Um, so he grabs some tape and basically he straps the gun to his back, and he comes stumbling in with his machine gun, which is empty, but they don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Hans, you know, he comes stumbling and he's like Hans. Hans and Hans grabs Holly, and then um, Holly's just like, "What the fuck?" And then uh, McLean's just like, "Hi, honey." Um, and then we get the the classic stare down, and then Hans is like, "Drop the machine gun." And then McLean, uh, he acquiesces. He drops the machine gun, and ha- it was just funny. Um, Bonnie Bedelia killed it. She just audibly gasps right here. Um, she's just like, "Oh no." Um, and then Hans and John kind of have their little interaction, talking about cowboys, the whole it can uh, caboodle. And uh, this is where John's like, John, if if you're like if you're stealing all this money, why you got to nuke the whole fucking building? He's like, well, if you stick, steal six hundred dollars, no one's gonna look for you. Steal six hundred million, mm-hmm. they're gonna come looking for you, unless they think you're already dead. Um, and then Hans is like, what did you say earlier? Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. And then John just starts laughing. Um, grabs his gun. Uh, he get he puts uh puts a bullet in Yuli's head and he gets he shoots um Hans and he does the old the old fancy smoking gun trick. But literally mm-hmm. doesn't realize that somehow so how is Hans stuck to her Rolex? I don't get that. Yeah. But I mean it's it's good symbolism, but basically Hans or Holly's stuck to Hans. And Hans falls out the window because, I mean, if you're stumbling, but um, he takes Holly with him. Um, John grabs her and they're struggling and, you know, John gets the watch off. And then um, have you read much about this scene with uh, Alan Rickman? Yeah, I, I think it's a well-known trick now. I've seen it. I've seen it done with other people. Like you want that natural reaction. So this wasn't the first time they'd done a scene like this with him. So they always prepared him for. Because I think he said he was uh, squeamish. So like when the guns fired, they would go like one, 
two, three, bang. And then he would be, even then he would still, you still see his reaction. So they, yeah, they told him that they're going to drop him on a count of three. And then they went one and then they dropped him on two. So his reaction was more authentic, which uh, it's a trick that quite a few, and if you don't know about it, it's perfect. You do get a far more natural reaction to it. So yeah, no, it's perfect. Yeah, it happened to me the first time I went skydiving too. We're gonna we're gonna jump out because I mean you're stuck to somebody like, yeah, we're gonna send you out on three, and then like one, two, one, and the next day I know I'm yeah, <laughs> I passed out. Yeah, so I'm like, oh. Um, but yeah, I mean gr- great shot though. I mean that shot yeah. will live in infamy. Slow-mo. Yeah, you can see he's coming around, he's getting about to fire the gun just before yep. the watch is released. And yeah, no, it's really cool. Um yeah, and then uh, and the yeah. comment from the ground as well is like, "I hope that's not a hostage." Yep. <laughs> yeah, at this point, it didn't make much difference. It's not like you're gonna happen. But. Yeah, and then um, yeah, I really like that you don't see him hit the ground. Um, you just hear it. Definitely mm-hmm. more of effect. Um, so all is well. You know, all the terrorists are dead. Um, we cut to Holly and John, and now they're coming down. And then uh, we get the moment we've been waiting for the whole movie. John and Al meet in real life, and they know. Obviously, obviously, Al can tell who John McClane is, but John yeah. knows who Al is. He just know they get a look, they hug, da 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 da. It's a great scene. Oh, and then, oh wait, Graham, it's not the end of the movie. Mm-mm. Nope. All of a sudden, we hear screaming and we hear gunshots. Carl's alive. He wasn't hung. And Carl's coming to shoot. Uh, McLean does a heroic thing. He grabs Holly, grips on top of her, and all of a sudden you hear a couple gunshots. Bam! Carl's brains are splattered all over the place. And then they shoot. It was Powell. Powell was able to draw his gun on somebody again. Another great camera shot, by the way. And that's the part that I'd forgotten. When I started watching again after that 20-year gap, that's the part that I'd totally forgotten about. And then when I watched that, then I was like, oh, my gosh, that's brilliant. Like, it made per- – that was the part that I'd forgotten. Oh, there's so much going on in that film that it's difficult to remember everything over that period of time. But that particular scene was like, that's brilliant. That really – because you do think that the film's ended. You're going to play the credits, blah, 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 you're all done. And then suddenly it just comes back up again. And, yeah, to kind of tie up those loose ends there, beautiful. Yeah, and then um, (laughs) there's a funny little scene. All of a sudden, a limo comes crashing. Elle's ready to shoot somebody else. McLean's like, oh, this one's on me. And then Argyle is busted out, um, you know. And and, um, oh, and then um, after that, um, before they go to the limo, so Dwayne or – oh, no, actually, I missed a part. So, yeah, they hug, and then uh, Dwayne's coming. He's going to yell at John. He's like, I want to debrief you. You know, I'm going to charge you with murder for Ellis, and you're blowing up a building, blah, 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 blah. And then the shots come, and then that happened. And then um, John and Holly are walking back, and uh, Thornburg sticks a, a camera in her face like, John, now that this is all ordeal, how you feel? And she just clocks him. She punches him for everybody in the movie, and she socked him good. Um. I love that scene. So obviously, you know, Thornburg had had risked her children's life and her life, and uh, she was getting her comeuppance. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, Powell leaves them, um, you know, into the into the movie. And then we end the movie with Argyle's like, man, this is what you guys do for Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. Um, I wrote that one down. I did like that line. I also like the fact that at the start of Die Hard 2, when Thornburg and Holly are on the plane, though, and they have yeah. to be seated apart because, like, 
yeah, I have a restraining order. She's not allowed within, I don't remember the distance, but like 50 feet of me or something. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously because of that incident. But that was nice, the connection between the end of that and the start of Die Hard 2 as well. Yeah. And then you get the cheesy kiss in the back and then we get more Christmas music and blah, blah. Um, but two things about this scene. Um, I love that all the paper's flying out of the place, so it looks like it's snowing. Yeah. And then the, I just noticed this for the first time as they drive off, the sun's coming up. Oh, I did not know, and I did not notice that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and that, ladies and gentlemen, um, is the end of uh, probably the greatest Christmas movie in the history of movies. Um, yeah, you got you got any final well, thoughts? I'll give on us that? One yeah, um, I'm sure we'll get some feedback on that. But uh, Graham, you got any final thoughts besides on how awesome this movie is? Um, the only thing I got is I, I did look at the end because I say I was looking to see what the other films were. Um, so this film got eight. Um, this is from IMDb. This film got eight point three. Die Hard two got seven point two. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance was seven point six. Live Free or Die Hard was seven point one. And A Good Day to Die Hard was five point two. Yeah. The thing that really surprised me about those ratings is, um, and it might just be me, I actually really love Die Hard two as well. I put Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2 almost at the same rating. I had them both really? 9 out of 10 at one point for my personal ratings. Uh, I bumped Die Hard up to 10 out of 10 because I was like, I can't I, I can't fault it. There's, there's, I know I made some little comments within as we were reviewing it, but like for me, it's like the perfect film. I can keep watching it again. Um, and I had Die Hard with a Vengeance at 8, and I had Live Free or Die Hard at 7, and I didn't give a rating for... A good day to die hard. I don't. I don't always put my ratings on the IMDb, but sometimes I do. But I was surprised how low Die Hard Two was. I, I don't know your opinion on the films. Um, I do like Die Hard with a Vengeance as well, but I was kind of surprised that the fourth film had the, almost the same rating as the second film. To me, the second film is way better than that fourth one. Hmm. I might have to check that out. I've I've seen it. Um, I don't know if I saw it in the movie theater. I think it might still have been too young. Um, but yeah, I might I might have to check that out. Um, it, it's been a long time, but yeah, I've seen Die Hard with a Vengeance dozens of times. So um, I mean, it's Samuel Jackson, you know. I mean, yeah, it's great. I told Jackson, I said you'd like it because they have like little riddles they've got to solve as they're going along. He's like, can I watch it? I was like, oh hell no, <laughs> you're not watching that film. But I was just saying, you'd like the riddles in it. That's for sure. That water bucket scene, I still can't wrap my head around that math. I don't know how they figured it out. I still. To this day, don't have that figured out. As a math person, it was when it came up. It was like I've I've already seen this one before. Like it, that to me, that was not a new one. I, as a math people, as a math teacher, often students will come up with you as well because they always like to try and trick you, and they'll show you puzzles. But I've ten. I think by now I've seen most of those, so that was a fairly well known one from my point of view. But well, next time we go to see wrestling, you're gonna have to explain that one because I could not get the math on that one in my head. So I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think one cup's like five and one's two, and then they got to make I don't know eight out of it or something. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's a yeah, it's a kind of a classic problem. So um, yeah, I mean this 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 movie changed the game. It really did. Um, I mean, how many? I mean, how many movies after this have we seen? You know, Under Siege is Die Hard on a boat. Um, speed is die hard on a bus, you know, and then, you know, like we talked about earlier, I mean, they really started to stare like, well, it's funny, the correlation to wrestling, um, you know, in the eighties, um, they started to go, you know, the nineties, the they started to get away from the big, you know, steroid heads, the more athletic, smaller guys, same thing in movies, you know, 
So maybe Vince was like, wow, Die Hard did good. Maybe I should book Shawn Michaels instead of Hulk Hogan. I should say Bret Hart instead of Hulk Hogan, but, you know, the timeline doesn't really match up. But you get what I'm saying. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this people look at this as, as an action movie, but it's so much more. Um, you know, it, it's pretty rare to see such a flawed action hero like this. We did John McClane, so. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, I got one last comment to make about Bruce Willis specifically. And I know we've agreed on pretty much everything with this film. We both love this film. It's right up there on our lists. We really enjoy it. I have one other Bruce Willis film that I absolutely love and is also in my top 10 films of all time. And I think I've only met one other person who even likes the film. Everyone else has either never heard of it or absolutely hates it. And uh, Hudson Hawk. Actually, I should say, I have, I, I have seen it, but it's been a long time, so I might have to revisit it. So you think it's that good, huh? Oh, it's in my top 10. Love it. I love it. But I, I, the reason I love it is the exact reason why most people hate it, because I don't think people understand it. It was actually, it, when you listen to the, I, I watched the, what is it, the director's comments um, when I've watched it as well. And they always talk about the fact that they know that it wasn't successful in America and Americans hated it. But they always point out in the film, but they, they say it multiple times, this was really successful in uh, Europe. And it was. And people didn't like it because they wanted another diehard film. They wanted an action film. And that's not what this was. This was a comedy. If you watch it as a comedy, it's fantastic. If you watch it as an action film, it probably is terrible. And there's also a lot of deliberate continuity errors in it as well. And people use that as a criticism of the film, not Hmm. realizing it was a comedy. But no, I absolutely adore that film. I could watch that one same thing i can watch that over and over again i haven't seen it in about five years actually it is one i need to go back and watch again but that hudson hawk is definitely my top 10 so another bruce willis movie that i consider maybe it's probably not my top 10 but my second favorite is definitely the last boy scout love that movie that's a long time since i've seen it but i remember liking it yeah um yeah i've seen hudson hawk i mean maybe i wasn't at my because i think i saw it relatively close to when it came out because it came out like 90, 91, 92. So, um, sounds about right. I will, uh, I will watch that again with a more educated mind. I, and, uh, I do that. like my favorite scene. There's two scenes I really love in that film. One is when they're singing, uh, the songs, uh, swinging on a star while they're committing the crimes. Cause it's like this crime takes three minutes and 40 seconds or whatever. And they're like, Oh, swinging on a star. And then they'll sing it rather than using a stopwatch. They'll just sing the song. I, I really like that. And the scene right at the end with the the annoying dog from oh god I can't remember what the character I can't remember the guy's name Richard E Grant I think it is hmm. uh, I think it's Richard E Grant's dog and they got like the tennis ball launcher and the dog likes to play with the dog the dog they fire the ball the dog jumps up catches it and you see the dog flip back flipping out the castle wall and all the way down into the and I just I just crack up laughing every time I see it it's just so silly. Hmm. But a totally different film, a totally different film to this. Um, but yeah, I don't. I think people don't like it because they want another, another copy of Die Hard, and of course that's what everyone's tried to recreate. Yeah. So okay, my homework is watch Die Hard two and Hudson Hawk. So, so <laughs> you'll well, appreciate the first one and you'll hate me for the second one probably. No, nah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, 
All right. Well, uh, Graham, you anything you want to shout out or your socials or any of your six million podcasts or oh, oh please. Have you been talking to Matt Willis or something? Like he says oh. I write that. Um, I had two podcasts out this week. Um obviously Good Cop, Bad Cop, um at Good Bad Wrestle every Sunday on uh, Visionaries Global Media is kind of the main one, I guess now. Um MGB, I have no idea what's happened to the MGB wrestling podcast. Mason hasn't recorded in weeks, and actually this uh, today. Um, Jackson released his own podcast. He want, he's been asking to do a sports podcast for ages. Uh, we had a baseball event this weekend. He said we're going to do a baseball podcast every week while the season's on. Um, I don't know if he's going to last that long, but that's currently what it is. So um, follow Mason at MGB Wrestling Pod, but I'm not sure if we're going to be doing any indie reviews. And follow Jackson at JGB underscore Jackson. But yeah, mainly follow Visionaries Global Media, I guess, because then you get everybody's podcast. That's probably the easiest way. At yeah. Viz Global Media. Yeah, I was gonna say you had a premiere because that was yeah that was Jackson's first sports one I saw drop today or, or is that today? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So for those yep. for for new high fivers that don't know, Graham his two sons, Mason and Jackson, are also podcasters. Um, great podcasters, and considering they are definitely substantially younger than both of us, so um, yeah, they, I am a Laurel listen to you get a uh, unique take when you talk to young kids. Yeah, for sure. So. Um, but Graham, listen, I know I said this earlier. Um, thank you for all the motivation and the inspiration and advice. And, uh, especially thank you for, uh, for coming on and spending, uh, three and a half hours with me. <laughs> a long, long time. It the wasn't o- quite my as only regret about this is my only regret is I constantly mock Matt for how long some of his podcasts are. And, um, unfortunately having done this one, that's gone way over three hours that I'm going to have to. I have to wind it back in a little bit. I like to mock him and make fun of him, and uh, I've just done exactly what he does. Yeah, but I mean, ours is no filler. Ours was three hours because it needed to be. So I mean, I uh, mean, we, we did. Yeah, you can't talk about the greatest movie and greatest Christmas movie of all time in a, like thirty minutes. I mean, the movie was two hours and twenty minutes, and we only went over that. So, so sweet. <laughs> well, Graham, my friend, thank you so much. I will. I'll talk to you soon. And high fivers. I will talk to everybody. Later. The music was Happy Happy Game Show by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. HTTP colon slash slash creativecommon.org slash licenses slash by slash 3.0 slash.